Welcome to Headlines. This is Ari Wasserman sitting in for David Lichtenstein. Today we are going to be talking about conflict in marriage, how to fight effectively. And in that regard, we're going to have a number of interesting questions. Are there halachas as to how spouses should engage in conflict? Do men and women fight differently? What are the top complaints that husbands have about their wives and vice versa? What are the complaints that wives have about their husbands? And should conflict be avoided or possibly even embraced? Are there benefits of being in conflict with one spouse? And then we are also going to talk about solutions. What are the effective methods to deal with conflicts? We have a number of very experienced guests joining us today to discuss all of these issues. We are going to start off with Rabbi Yaakov Neuberger. He is the rabbi of Congregation Beth Abraham in Bergenfield, New Jersey. He's also Rosh Hashiva at Ritz, who deals with a number, numerous Shalom Bias issues for a number of decades now. And then we are going to move forward over to Yerushalayim and speak with Rabbi Peretz and Mrs. Shoshana Siegel. They are marriage and conflict resolution experts. They run workshops and coaching, etc. A very interesting dynamic when we have a husband and wife together talking about these issues. Then we are going to meet with Mrs. Hani Jaravel, the popular lecturer and therapist who has been advising couples, individuals and couples for three decades now. And then we will speak with Rabbi Danielle Frank, a licensed marriage therapist and also a dating coach. And he is uh, putting out his third book shortly on the subject matter of today's topic. And we will also be speaking with, to culminate the show, Mrs. Penina Flug, an emotionally focused couples therapist. And we are going to speak with her about what couples can do in advance of marriage to deal with the almost inevitable conflicts that they will have post-marriage and even before they get married, there will likely be conflicts possibly. So we're going to talk about what can be done in anticipation of the conflicts that will ensue. Just recently, I uh, met in Shul somebody from Belgium, and he said, uh, you should be giving the answers to the riddles that you ask. Interesting riddles, give the answers. So I'll give the answer to one. We heard it a couple of years ago already, Parshas Kisei say two years ago and in the Parsha talks about when there are irreconcilable differences between spouses, then we have a get. We have a uh, divorce document. Interestingly, the Torah does not call it a get. The Torah says, V'kasav la sefer krisus. It is a document dividing between the two, having a separation between the spouses, but it doesn't call it a get. Hazal call it a get. And the Gra asks the following question. This was the riddle from a couple of years ago. Why do we call it a get. What is get? What does get represent? And the Groh answers as follows. If you look through the Chumash, and not only the Chumash, if you look through the Tanakh, the Aleph Bay's letters are always by each other, meaning every letter can be by another letter, with the exception of the two letters get. Gimel and Tess are never next to each other. They represent distance. Distance between themselves, distance between the spouses. And accordingly, he says, there is no more appropriate name to call a divorce document than a get because the gimel and tess are never right next to each other. There is a distance. And in fact, there's that distance certainly upon divorce, but even when there's a dispute, a machlokas between spouses, there is a distance as well. And the distance can be small and the distance can be 
very significant. And in fact, when choosing the title for today's topic, Conflict in Marriage, How to Fight Effectively, a number of different words, different titles could have been chosen because if you look at the synonyms for the word fight or conflict, it comes up as follows, dispute, quarrel, squabble, disagreement, friction, strife, antagonism, and also difference of opinion. That doesn't sound as distant from each other as some of the others, like a dispute, a machlokas, a fight, waging war. And if we think about the verbs, that's assuming that it was a noun. Conflict is a noun, but if it's a verb to be in conflict, we could have called it a clash between the spouses or to be incompatible, be in opposition, be at variance, be at odds, be in conflict, or simply to differ. And we're going to talk about all of that, whether the machlokas is small, or the machlokis is big, what are the main machlokises, and what are the methods, what are the effective methods to deal with machlokis, so that gap, the distance, there should not be very significant between the spouses. One thing that will be mentioned on the show, but I don't think enough, is that the financial aspect of machlokis is very significant. We talk about it a little bit, but we don't get into too much detail. And I just wanted to flesh this out a little bit because I found an interesting Kashuke Chemed on Beya Daftezayin. And he was asked the following question. What should a person do? What should a husband do if there is conflict with his wife over finances? In particular, if she desires luxuries and they are expensive and he is of the view we don't have the money. It's not in the budget. It. We cannot afford it. How should the husband handle that and the ensuing shalom bias issues? So the Hashuk Echemer, Rabbi Yitzhak Zilberstein, responds as follows, initially quoting a Bira Lacha. And in the Bira Lacha, it's in Simatav Kuf Haftes, he quotes the Gemara and Beitzah, in Yana that the Mazonos of Shaladam Ksuvim Lomarosh Hashanah Rosh Hashanah, that our income for the next year will be set from Rosh Hashanah until Rosh Hashanah. And Rashi comments that you have to be careful what you spend because there is a limit. Because a Kaddish Baruch who decided already the prior Rosh Hashanah what our income is going to be. And accordingly, if you exceed it, you exceed it. It's not going to be made up. And adds on the Chavetz Chaim in the Birolach as follows. Here we have a big tochacha, a rebuke to many people in our times that in our sins, people are violating this. They're spending way in excess of what they should be spending on. They're spending on luxuries. They're spending on things that they don't need. And he says there are many reasons for that. Many reasons. But he says the main reason is because there are wives that are not paying attention to the real needs in the household. And uh, they're spending on luxuries, and uh, accordingly, that is causing the families to go into the red. It's that's causing uh, the budget to be broken, and that's causing a lot of financial woes in his generation. And he goes on to say, and this is the Choshuch Echemed, based on that Biur Allah, he says, based on that, we would say that the husband should simply say, no, we don't have the budget, we don't have the finances for that, and we can't afford these additional items that are not necessary, and uh, I'm sorry, but we, we're not going to be able to purchase those items. So that's uh, that's where he uh, understands, that's where the Choshuch 
Chamed, he deduces from this Biralacha. But having said that, he goes on to quote the Mamar Mordechai. Rabbi Mordechai Menachem Schwab, who says in the name of the, also the Chavetz Chaim, that uh, there are times, and he starts out the same, there are times that the woman desires to buy certain things, and uh, they are not necessary, they are luxuries, and uh, the budget doesn't allow, and the husband doesn't want to buy it, and he's correct. He happens to be correct, based on the facts, based on the finances, that items should not be bought. However, having said that, there is another very significant consideration, and that is making sure that we maintain Shalom bias. And accordingly, the Chavetz Chaim would advise that what a husband should do is that he should save over time and put in a separate account. He should call it the Shalom bias account, the Karen Shalom bias, that when there are needs that come up that are in excess of the uh, allowables for that family, he has saved up to ensure that he'll be able to maintain the Shalom bias. And in fact, the Ben Yehoyada asks as follows as a Gemara, he quotes that uh, it's important that an individual a husband should uh, spend more on his wife and his children more than he has more than he has asked the Ben Yehoyada so where's the money coming from is he supposed to steal if there's a hole if it's uh, not in the budget and he doesn't have the funds for it where's that money going to come from and he answers as follows Okay, I have a set budget and this is an excess. What the husband needs to do is he needs to eat less. He needs to skimp on himself in order for him to be able to have some excess in order to spend on his wife and his children. So that is the solution that the Ben Yehoyada says. And uh, what we're seeing from here is that this is a complicated area, especially when it comes to finances. That one On the one end, the Chavetz Chaim says in the Bir Lacha that uh, these are luxuries and they shouldn't be spent on. But the Marmar Mordechai, wooding the Chavetz Chaim says, but having said that, we need to compromise and we need to make sure to maintain Shalom bias and accordingly the husband should save and take it out of his pocket what he would spend on himself his own needs not his luxuries his own needs to make sure that he can afford even luxuries for the rest of the household. That's a very interesting takeaway um, and that is where the Chashuge Chemed ends. So uh, that is something to bear in mind. Actually, when we have our first riddle, we'll have a wee riddle based on this that uh, where is there a Gemara? Where is there a Gemara that basically says that the husband should spend less on himself and should spend more on his wife and his children? I, I want to apologize to the uh, editor because uh, we usually give time for the editor to put in the music and I didn't give him uh, time to put in the riddle music. So let's have another riddle or two and now we'll uh, put in the music. So here we go. Now we will hear the riddles of the week. The second riddle of the week is uh, as follows on Parsha's Kiseitzeh. It says at the way beginning of the Parsha, talking about the Afastor, when there's a uh, Kalishal has to go out to war and the man sees uh, the non Jewish woman and uh, he can take her, to, assuming that he uh, fits the halachic requirements, he can take her as a wife. Rashi quotes the Chazal 
in the Gemara and Kiddushin as follows. Why is this permitted? Non-Jewish woman, take her as a wife. What's going on here? La Dibra Torah, Ela Keneged Yetzirah. The Torah is addressing the Yetzirah. The Yetzirah is there, and we need a solution for the Yetzirah. And the question is as follows. If you look at the language in Rashi, he's quoting Chazal. So if we look at the language here, it says, La Dibra, the Torah did not speak except Keneged Yetzirah. There there's a much easier way to say this. It could have simply said, Dibra, Torah, Keneged, Yitzhara. The Torah was addressing the Yitzhara. Why did it say, Lo Dibra Torah, Ela, Keneged, Yitzhara? There's so many more. Two extra words there, the law and the Ella. Why was that necessary? That is our second riddle of the week. And the third riddle of the week, a little bit further in the Parsha, it says, as well as talking about the Mamzer, and Mamzer is not permitted to marry into Klal Yisrael, and the Pasuk says... In Perikhaf Gimel, Pasuk Gimel, Gamdor, Asiri, Loyavolo, Bikal Hashem, even in the 10th generation, Mamzer cannot marry in. And the question is as follows, when it comes to Mamzeris, it's not only from the 10th up to the 10th generation, it's forever a Mamzer or a descendant of a Mamzer cannot marry into a Kalal Yisrael. So why does the Torah, why does the Pasuk specifically say Gamdor, Asiri, even the 10th generation cannot marry in if the prohibition continues way thereafter for eternity. If you want to leave a message by phone or dial in by phone to listen, in America, our number is 732-806-8700. In England, it's 44, like that's the country code, 33011-70250. In Eretz Yisrael, it's 02-372-0304. And now let's go to our wonderful guests. Joining us now is Rabbi Yaakov Neuberger. Rabbi Neuberger is the rabbi of Congregation Beth Abraham in Bergenfield, New Jersey, a position he has had since 1990. That's a lot of years. He is also a Rosh Hashivat Ritz, and one of his many areas of expertise is marriage and also Shalom Bayis. Rabbi Neuberger, thank you so much for joining us. Ari, thanks for the privilege of being part of your work, and because uh, Baruch should continue to bless you to uh, serve Klal Yisrael and add uh, depth and dimension to so many of the important issues that we have to discuss. Or, or the issues that we confront, as in confrontations, because that is our topic of the Thank you very much, Rabbi Neuberger. So, so about confrontations, uh, regarding Machlokas, we're talking specifically about controversy in marriage. So as a Rav, when should people go to a Rav for an Eitzah on a controversy in marriage? And maybe when they should they go elsewhere and not to the Rav? Coming to the, I, I think a Rav is always a, a good first stop as long as they're comfortable coming to the rub. Um, the rub will, will help them decide if it's a, if they think together that the issue can be handled and discussed in, a, in one meeting or two meetings, or if it's something that's deeper and, and needs to, requires expertise of therapists. Usually the litmus test is whether the relationship has become dysfunctional. If it's a dysfunctional relationship, so then that's usually the when we would pass it on to a therapist. Um, very often, the litmus test of that is it something we can solve in two meetings or does it require more and deeper work? It happens to be the 
the litmus test for holy in general, whether a person has become somewhat dysfunctional, some area of life, um, some some limb has become dysfunctional. So, but coming to the Rav as a first stop at the very, very um, outset, can the Rav is able to bring the resources that he has gathered over time to help the couple. And over time, he has uh, vetted various different therapists and uh, those who, Baruch Hashem, have expertises in the areas that, that this couple needs. And therapists that are sensitive to the the the, uh, the values and the uh, d- differing value that we give to our values. So that would be, that's why it's a, it's a, a good first stop. Sometimes... A couple will come because they have trouble making decision, and a, a rub can just be helpful in nurturing them to that position. They come to the rub because so many of our drushes are about the importance of family and how family is uh, crucial for the extension of the Mesorah. So they are coming to a place where they understand the value of Shalom bias is, is profound. And so between the resources, the, the once they come to the rub, so then a lot of things happen which um which they may have appreciated but that we can get into uh, so so on a high level if it's a localized issue then the rav is a good address we would say that in hilchas refuan chab if it's, if it's a michush balma right it's a localized right. pain as opposed to something that's a chola something that's more general something that's more system wide which would be a dysfunctional relationship then maybe you go to the rav and say and he's going to forward them on to somebody who has more of a specialty and has maybe even more time to deal with the issue. Right. And sometimes being the therapist and the rub will work together. And uh, whereas the therapist is offering therapy, the, the rub can always offer chizuk and the rub will help them stay in therapy and explain to them the value of the same with the therapist. And if there are halachic issues, then the rub will uh, weigh in on and those. Right. And, and the Rav can frame, this is a very important piece to what we're talking about, the Rav is able to frame the issue in as being part of our Vodas Hashem. The Rav can, just like you know, a person understands they have to go to a doctor to become healthy. Well, sometimes they have to go to a therapist in order to be able to make sure that one's home is the home that it can be, that it's a place that we can raise children with Yishev Adas, and, it, and you're able to frame it in terms of keeping a, another way in which we serve the Rav Shalom. And the Rav is able to frame it in terms of uh, the way that Chazal explained to us that uh, it's a it's a, that Shalom bias is an ongoing um, investment that people make. It's ongoing effort, ongoing for Ulos. Um, I came across an interesting aura that uh, when Mordechai said in Esther that uh, Mordechai was I forget what the lotion is. says that was one of his zechuyes. It was Every single day he was investing in the relationship. So, but to frame the um, to frame what they're going through as something that in a way that we can serve the Rebbeim better and have more nachos from our children, that can be Rebbeim can be very helpful that way. I, I, I'm pretty sure I heard it uh, in the name of Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky. I think it was Rabbi Fran that said it, that uh, Chazal say that Zivugim are Kasha Kriyas Yamsuf. They don't say Shiduchim are Kasha Kriyas Yamsuf, but Zivugim. And the difference is Shiduchim is a one-time thing. When you set the people up, that's the Shidduch. But Zivugim is ongoing. And ongoing issues throughout life, throughout a marriage, that's why it's Kasha Kriyas Yamsuf. So I, I think that's along yeah, the line. I often start Shalom Bayes presentations with Chaim Shmulevitz. 
that he has the classic comment of the Malachim who come to Avram Avinu, and uh, they inquire about Sarah. So the Medrash says, because they were wanted to endear Sarah to her husband. So Chaim Shemal says, at that advanced age, so they're still worried about uh, being this eye. You see that it's a, it's a, a pu'ul, it's an avoda, and it's part of avoda Hashem that is ongoing. Oh, very nice. Sorry, very nice. So, Rabbi Neuberger, what happens if instead of both spouses coming to you, one spouse <laughs> comes to you? And they have a shalom bias issue. And and oftentimes, if anyone is mediated, for example, on a financial controversy, and one party comes to you and explains their side and want to complain, it's happened to me. I've I've tried, attempted to help on a number of uh, financial issues, mediations between two people. And the first one comes to you and gives their story, and you say, "Oh, sounds terrible." And then the second one comes to you and say, "Oh, wow, that's a totally different story. That sounds..." Terrible. And and uh, the question is, when one spouse comes to you with a shalom bias, a serious shalom bias issue, and it's only one spouse, how do you handle that situation? So we, we always try to have both uh, both spouses come. But when one spouse comes, there's still a lot that we can accomplish. I always ask, after I listen to the presentation, I always ask the, sp- the spouse that comes, what would your husband or wife say if they were in the room? Right? How would they How would they defend their position? How would they plan? So whatever the response is, it's a very, very telling. Sometimes there is, the son actually gets one spouse to be able to understand their spouse better. And sometimes we're able to, that's just an important conversation. It's an important tool that they can think about what they're husband would say or the wife would say and it's um and it's sometimes just very important information and sometimes it gives a lot to work with and to be able to frame it in a way that it's that both sides are reasonable and we have to figure out a way how do two reasonable people come to a, a resolution um sometimes the the idea that one is let's say and if, if a spouse says i really don't i really don't know what their position is so then there's an indication that there's a there is a conversation there's a discussion which didn't happen and we have to figure why why didn't that happen you know why don't why isn't there some understanding of what the other one would say so it, it gives us the opportunity to discuss techniques the importance of listening the importance of putting oneself in one's spouse's shoes to understand something to explore perhaps the spouse meant something other than uh, than you think that what they meant so there's a lot of value in having one spouse and you can accomplish a lot and Sometimes, sometimes the approach will be that there is a great value in being bevater, that uh, vitor, letting things go and giving in. So giving things, it's in, in, in the American or the Western approach, giving in is weak. And giving in means I'm going to be resentful later on. And if if a person says giving in, I'm going to resent, then, then that's not an option. But in our thinking, Vitor, that is, uh, that there's a great, and if you can explain to a person, values Vitor. Your children are going to see Vitor. There was a great story of the, uh, the Satmir Rav that uh, he, was one time when he wanted to, he was planning to having a tish. Friday night tish. And the Rebidson had reasons that she did not, not did not want to tish that night. So he came into the room and planning to have a tish. And the Rebbe says to however he, she spoke to the, the Rebbe, she said in in, uh, in very certain terms that she did not want to have it. And the Satmarov uh, 
conceded immediately. So the Shamus was there and it was just taken aback because the Satan Rav was known to be strong-minded, to be, to stand his ground. And over here, he's uh, limping out of the first round. So the Satmar Rav said to um, Saul, was going in the mind of his shamash, and he says to him, he says, uh, when it comes to marriage, giving in is the winner. Oh, wow. Very, very so, powerful. Uh, very powerful. So, so, so what do you do when both spouses come to you? Do you give them each an opportunity to speak? Do you ask them, what do you think the other side would say? How do you handle that situation? When both come, so then we get a chance to, we get a chance to discuss the issue, obviously from different perspectives. And it's very, very instructive because there are two things that are happening. One is we're talking about the issue, and we're also looking at how the two, how this two, how the husband and wife speak to each other, and how they listen to each other. So that becomes, so there's two, two different things are happening. That is sometimes I'm able to point out, you know, you didn't really hear what the what your spouse said, right? You have to. I, I heard it differently. Then why did I hear it differently? And very often it's explaining the merit of both sides, and very often it's explaining the the difficulty and the pain that one side has in the way the other side sees it. And, and often they just don't appreciate it. And sometimes the rub is able to say, what you think is a unique and difficult position of your spouse, that's that's what's happening in the community. You have to realize this is a chazal, always talk about the idea of being consistent with either the way that a person was raised or the way that a person has found themselves in presently. So, so, the, so those are important uh, conversation sometimes it uh, this this goes back to whether one or, or both come is to if it's if they have seriously uh, difficult uh, feelings towards each other to go back the young kadmonim you know when did this go off track and 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 what were your feelings and how sometimes it's restoring respect for each other because if they don't respect each other then we, it's very hard to go further then there's a lot of work to do so let's say you have the issues on the table and uh, you need to work on a resolution. What's a method or methods that you use in order to try to resolve the issues between the spouses? Yeah, Vitor, you tell one to be Mavater, but if that's not working, how, how do we try to resolve these issues? So again, we're talking about in the realm of a non-professional. In other words, that might already be time to to move it to the desk of a professional. Yeah, but, but if, it, if it's on the rabbi's desk, if it's on the rabbi's right. desk. So usually what I would try to find is how is a situation where both are being mavater and something. So therefore, they, they don't feel they're coming to the rabbi. The rabbi just, sometimes one side is not reasonable and uh, one has to work hard to explain and uh, and why that's a, and why that's important. Um, sometimes, it is, most of the time, there is a, it's important that each side sees value in the other side's position, sees why it's worthwhile being mevater on something. They're both being mevater on something, and they're both doing it for each other, to help each other, to strengthen their relationship. Sometimes it lets the conversation go to the point where where we're able to point out that each one really is zeroing on their own flaw, which they see in their spouse. I find that probably the greatest single technique that Chazal has given us in individual and in, in self-improvement and in relationships is kola posel, bumumo posel. We see things through our flaws. So personally, when I see that guy, a guy's a bal gaiva. I'm really talking to the gaiva within myself, usually. I have a poisel. And the person 
has to be discerning. But call a poisel, if I dismiss somebody and I and I reduce him because of a certain me, that's it's really the me that I have that I'm viewing things through. And the same thing is true with couples. Very often with Melissa conversation, go and go and go, and then you're able to say, well, what you're really saying, what you're really what you're really seeing in your spouse is something that maybe you have a little bit also. And if they're able to see the the soul in themselves, they become much more accepting of the uh, of what they thought was their with their husband's flaw. That's got to be a little bit difficult to acknowledge and realize if he's so, let's say the man is so upset at the woman for X and saying, well, that's you. Uh, that's that's got to be a difficult uh, right, so to over. That's where lumbus comes in, where, where it's sometimes in a much smaller, it's like we call it zer anpin. But once you see it, then then it's much easier to accept. And you know, I could have a Mida, my wife has on steroids. All right, so then, but once I see I have the Mida, so then it becomes much easier to to be accepting. Okay, and let, then let's take- one of the important things that Rabbanim are skilled at doing is because this is Klaus Chazal's approach is that is to see the tove in people to, to and that couples when they get into a heated argument they only see the negativity and you have to say, take a step back and and a good father a good mother a good daughter let's talk about the uh, and and that's be able to to make each one less focused on what is separating right, right now and bring them back to the reality that there's so much to respect and so much to love them. Remember why you married her. Yeah. Okay, very good. So let's take a step back for a second. What do you think the root cause of conflict and disagreements are? So men, women coming. Is it because men are very different from women? Women are de- very different from men? Or is it different personality types of different ways that they grew up? Is there some Sara Shavesh that you see when uh, many conflicts come come your way that uh, men typically do X and women do Y or something like that? Or is it uh, every case is really different and dependent um, and uh, there's really no uh, thread that goes through them. Yes, I, I don't have that kind of volume that I could say that there's a etzad shava. I, I think that, and I think that's one of the one of the strengths of coming to a rav is that is that our, our our volume is such that we that we see each situation in a almost de novo fashion in, in and of itself. That uh, we try to see it. There now there are certain common threads that. One finds often in young couples that they just they don't appreciate what a wife needs here, wants here, what a husband wants here, needs here. So that um, going forward, and as the 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 issues are all over the map, but the the core the core skills that couples need. So those are knowing how to appreciating that men and women want different reactions to things that are raised, appreciating the importance of listening, of patience, uh, appreciating what has become famous, the different languages of love, that people express themselves differently and they express their care differently. So th- those tools cut across. But again, it's the the issues that come through. Yeah, the issues are varied. The, I understand the, yes. the issues are varied, but the root cause seems to be... Well, the root cause... The techniques and the tools that we need to, that a rub can give a couple are often very, very similar. Okay, very good. So, are there halachas as it relates to how to fight or maybe how not to fight, fighting properly and fighting improperly? Is this a halachic question as well, or is this uh, just a conceptual shalom bias discussion? I was telling you something in between. Uh, there, there, there are halachic paradigms that you pointed out about oh no, that one has to be careful the way that one speaks to, one can't speak in in hurtful terms 
when when always has to speak to the issue and not to the the person. There's the, the two things. One thing is to avoid, and this is particularly true of uh, of guys from the Olam Yeshiva. Uh, guys from the Olam Yeshiva, we like looking at sugyas, and then we like uh, looking at different parts of the sugya, asking a kasha and finding a yesoid. And and one principle that uh, explains all the different issues. So guys sometimes do that with their wives, and that's a terrible thing to do. That's that that's for a therapist to work out and. Um, so that we try to avoid giving a sheer about the with the issue, but the uh, but what is very important is that Chazal do point out that the also Kirova that uh, I think the Gemara says um, the Gemara in Bumetzi I think that uh, the Ainoa what has to be more concerned what has to be what has to be more concerned about the Ainoa of. Um, of one's wife than other people because the uh, krova. So before she explain that um, the idea of the krova is that when it come, that my the if I if I, if I say something hurtful to my wife that is far more painful than if somebody else is something that's hurtful because it, it's a disappointment in the entire relationship and it's a di- disappointment coming from the person that is that is crucial. To her, to her tafkin in life, crucial to accomplishing the home that she envisions to accomplish. It goes both ways. It goes both ways. So the um, so it has to be ex- much more careful, and one has to realize that th- that the way that one expresses oneself um, is going to be is it can be the kind of thing that can linger on long after the. Uh, the issue has been has been resolved. Da- so, damage so that's, damage yeah. can be inflicted. Damage can be yeah. inflicted, and Dima Sakrova means that the tears will come on much quicker than from anyone else. Right, right. Okay, so so another. Chaim Friedlander points out that the Gemara Ksuvis, when the uh, the Talmud that that was uh, deliberating whether to come home or not, and uh, and it says the Osa al the Osa al she just had a tear. Rolled down, and then he was held responsible as, as the roof caved in, and he uh, fell to his death. So I think Rechaim Friedlander says, first of all, he points out is dim also now. That was it. So for for one's wife, the demois now is is the litmus test for and they know that's that's uh, that has to be um, avoided. It doesn't mean go up to there, but that's really the right. other line. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. So, so an, another halacha question does come up: telling the truth. I, yeah. I'll tell us you you don't have to tell the truth for shalom bias issues, but practically speaking, uh, it, it, telling the truth if, if it's going to cause tension, if it's going to cause conflict, then I'll give a couple of examples. The wife asks the husband, "Do you like my new shaitel?" or "Does this dress look good on me?" and he hates it. So, how do you deal with that situation? So I think there's a there. You know, we we've been raised from our youth about the mutual shanos of shalom, and we it comes from the rebbeim from himself. I don't he's okay. Now, and the, we also have to appreciate that um, in our lives nowadays, it, the value of integrity and uh, honesty is um, surpasses almost all other values. And the ability for a spouse to say, "Really trust what my husband." Or my wife is saying so that is of supreme concern. So, so the idea of lishan knows mishum is a very, very, very limited. Um, and even in the case where the rebbeim used it, it was limited. I don't know of any 
impact it would have later on. And when Akash Baruch Hu employed it, it was also possibly, it was possibly the MS. In other words, she said, Vadoni Zokain. She said, right? So Akash Baruch Hu said, he may hear is meaning I could have a child any day now, but my husband is over the hill, right? So that's what she may hear. So Kedush Baruch Hu brought it back to a more emistika situation by having her hear it differently. But it wasn't, uh, it wasn't, um, it, the, the Gemara says that uh, Rav went to great pains not to be, not to say something inappropriate, but Rav's, the story that Rav's wife, for some reason, always gave him Tulufchi when he asked for something else, and when he asked for something else, he got Tulufchi, and uh, Rav could have easily fixed it by just asking for what he didn't want that day, and he said, no, we can't have a situation where the, the home is built on on." a lack of integrity. And that's just asking for food. That's asking for a meal. That's not the... So... It's, so the the shalom is a very 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 limited uh, applicability In the case that you mentioned, the Gemara says he brought his kinyan home. Right, it's here. She has the shaitel. It's not going to. It's not getting returned. So if it's the kind of thing where husband thinks that it really, it's not going. She will not be uh, comfortable ultimately with it. So then, and there's a way of fixing it. Okay, then it makes sense to say Vesof Eraka that... Uh that the way she looks is very important to him, and 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 this does not flatter her; it does not do her justice. All right, that's. Uh, but let's say it's, uh, it's done. This is bought in a clearance sale. It's already been cut. It's been washed. It's, so then, it's better to to make a person feel good about their Kenyan, and uh, rather than have somebody else have the kids. You know, maybe. Uh, if the, if the, if husband thinks it's not flattering in his wife, so but, the default uh, the default would be we don't want to lie. However, there are going to be certain circumstances. For example, it was already purchased and it may not be fixable. So then you may have to you may have to uh, massage your language. And obviously, it's important more important than what you say is how you say it. So that would be an important thing to say in in the proper way. But say yeah, it looks nice. It's a uh, let's. I'll, I'll tell you a great a, a great amazing story. I heard this from Ray Ribner. It's about Moshe Shmuel Shapira, Mary Yaakov, that um, he was, he had some, he had some Talmudim over around the table Friday night, and she began to serve, she brought up the chicken, the chicken was burnt to a crisp. And there wasn't, that's what they had. That was what they had. That's what that was the meal. That's what the boys were going to have. They weren't. Uh, so, anyways, so the boys were there. She brings it out. Rosh Shapiro sees it, and what's he going to do? He's not going to say it's delicious. Right? That uh, she understands. She sees what's happening. So she says to his wife, "He says, I rather have this chicken that your hands made than a chicken that uh, some other person would have made." So that's such a pikhos there. That's 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 you have to be thinking on the spot. You have to be thinking yeah. on the spot like that. So l- let me let me change it. We'll reverse the roles now. And if we have a situation that the wife is very strict about kasha, so now we're going to talk about when when the husband is is uh, yeah, there's there, there's conflict between them. She's very strict and she's getting upset at him. He's uh, he he is miikar uh, If it's cold, then it's fine. Everything's fine if it's cold. And and she wants to go much more than that. It causes a shalom bias issue. So how should that situation be handled? You get go to the rav and say, what's the open up the shulchan aruch? What are we passing like? Is that is that how to handle it? Could be. So the uh, is it's a two tiered conversation. 
right? One is to validate the positions that people are making. Um, and sometimes if if the spouse is, is, is really uh, taking ashitas yachad and das yachad, that's something that she saw and misunderstood, and so then one has to bring it back into the mainstream of approaches. But let's say it's a situation where the husband says, but her, the, but, but women, but families are generally more machmer. The family she came from is more machmer. She will always be uncomfortable in her kitchen if she's not allowed to function a certain way. So again, if it's out of the pale, so then one's making the Rebunshim's Torah into something which is onerous and inappropriate, then one, that one has to walk that back. But if it's something which is within the pale, which which, which there are families who, who are doing it, where she comes to it honestly, it's what her parents did. It's nothing she picked up and uh, so then one tries to, one explains the Chachila, the Evan, they're both in the same, they're not so far from each other, that if the husband does something and it's but he it okay. It's not worth a machlaikis, it's not worth, but also to frame it in terms of the erlachkite of the woman. This we, I had this in Tarsim Mishwacha many times, where a woman take, takes an approach, but it's out of erlachkite. So then you have to explain to the husband, you have an erlach wife. You have a, a home that's going to be built on Yerushalayim. So so you have, uh, it's a little bit more, incon- it's inconvenient sometimes when they, uh, how you run the kitchen. But the way your children are being raised, but the way that their banishroom is going to be a part of this mikdashmat, you have to appreciate that. She's keeping a certain misora. So so in this particular case, that misora makes you uncomfortable. But to have a balas misora, to have a home that's built on that, you have to look at the bigger picture. And, and that gives it appreciation. And it should be marba'ava between the couple. And if uh, if that's the decision, that it's not beyond the pale, um, then would the husband have to adhere even when she's not in the kitchen? The, the, I think the answer is if, if it has lasting effect, yeah. <laughs> if it doesn't have lasting effect, then probably not. In other words, if it's the one time, if he just wants to put his milk and coffee on the on a on, on a on a box that's sitting on top of the flasher counter, and he so then uh, that probably not a problem. But if it's the kind of thing where he's going to use a, I don't know, uh, I'm going to give an example of something which is gonna, which she would feel later on this should be kashered. This is not out of cover for your wife. Yeah, I guess it's probably important that the kids not see that he'd be doing that because otherwise that would be fairly confusing. It could be confusing, but but, but it could be confusing. But I, I think that it's that that it. It's not. It's entirely appropriate for a father or mother to say to a child, "Look, this is my. I, I'm going beyond the requirements, and uh, and I respect my spouse for beyond, beyond the requirements, and, and I'm respecting it. I give covet to her, and I'm being more careful." Okay, so that's uh, to to teach covet that way, and to teach Vita, it's, it's great. Very nice. So be open about it. Be open about it with the I kids. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Very nice. Uh, spouses come into a marriage in a certain state, into a certain position. They have certain values and uh, certain things that they adhere to. Maybe certain things that they don't adhere to. What happens as uh, they? get married and things progress and there may be changes along the way. One may want to take on certain chumras or go and regress on certain things. And is there a problem with that when you've come in with an understanding that you were going to be adhering to certain alachas or certain minhagim and somebody wants to make a change? So if it's if it's a, a change in a positive direction, so that is, so we have to have a conversation. That's every, everybody wants growth. Everybody wants to, to be able to improve oneself. And, and so I may choose, I want to improve myself in certain areas of life. So my wife 
may want to improve other areas of life. So to have a growth culture in one's home is tremendous. And, and for the children to see growth culture, tremendous. So that is a value in and of itself, which if it gets promoted through um, the, the family doing, taking on a certain um, chumra, taking on a certain uh, hidur. So I think that that is uh, such a great value. Embrace it. Let's, under, let's embrace it in that way. A child comes home and wants to do something. It's a, a young girl comes home, she wants to light neighbor's Shabbos. Right? So very often it rattles the parents. So I'm going to explain to the parents. You have to explain to her not to take on a net or it's going to be coming from later on. But a child wants to do something ruchni, then it's very, very uh, questionable whether it's it's right to discourage that ruchni is to grow. The same thing is true. So you have a culture of growth. So that is something that's so precious. Embrace it, work with it, accept. Now, when it's the other way around, so, and, and before we go on, but, and the person should always choose the, the ruchni is the growth which affects them and not their family. If I have his errors and I want to do something that, uh, I, so then there's so many ways, so many things that I can, uh, ways that I can improve my avodah Hashem, which do not impact on my wife or children. So, so why, why am I choosing, choosing something that impacts them? I should choose the area that is between me and the Belshim entirely. Now, if there's a decline so that's a, that is a very concerning issue, and and that has to be discussed. If the decline is in one person's practice, and it doesn't and need not affect the the family practice, so then the importance of maintaining the home and the stability of the home, and the, and the children having both parents at home, and so it has to be able to try to accept it. Even it could be a, it could be a serious lapse in the Bodhis Hashem, a serious lapse in one's mitzvahs. Again, one tries to speak to both couples and say he didn't sign up for this, and let's keep to the, there's, there's an understanding, there's a contract, but let's say one couple, one side says, EF Shah, I can't do it anymore. So then I believe that in, in most cases, the, the robust vitality of the home will be the, the more important, um, the more important uh, issue to embrace. And the Mimvi Machazik, the other spouse, the some, and, and this, uh, each thing it has to be figured on its own, but it happens, it happens if there's a decline in the husband's minion attendance, it happens if there's a decline in the husband's learning, it has a decline in one's wife's concern for its neos, it happens if, if there's a decline in the way that one speaks. So each issue has to be dealt with independently, but the overall, um, concern for the COVID that they have for each other and for the, stability of the home. So that has to be at usually the highest value. That's going to be paramount. The, the shalom bias, that'd be shalem. Stability of the home and the respect for each other. And the, and, and, and it, it'll mean muting the way that one expresses oneself. If a spouse that my, my husband is not, uh, has had a big decline in going to minion. So that's, that is a conversation which happens between husband and wife, not in front of the children. We have to, and, and we have to find a way that one can respect one's spouse, even though there there is a disappointment. At the same time, one has to speak to the husband and say, "Look, uh, don't be a nar. You, know, uh, you you have a beautiful home. You know, function in a way, even if there is a diminishing in your, is that you're getting burnt out in the same. Let's work on not getting and being mitchazeg, but you know, don't live, don't disappoint your wife. It's not a healthy." dynamic that. I guess it's better that conversation come from the Rav 
as opposed to the wife. 100%. Rabbi Neuberger, as, as a last message to people listening, what's a final thought that you have that uh, both men, women can keep in mind in order to uh, focus on and increase their shalom bias? One idea which I have found personally to be very, very instructive, very mechazek in issues, is an idea that Rev. Shimshon Pincus opens his volume on Shalom Weisman. And he says that, um, that, that when we, many, many from people, certainly many B'nai Yeshiva, B'nai Torah, so they are very quick and excited to do a mitzvah, and, but they're not so excited and quick to concede or give in to their wives. So he said the way to, the way you have to frame this is the ultimate goal is that our, our home should be a mikdashma. The ultimate goal is that our home should be a, a, a place where Kishbarach is comfortable. But ultimate goals ha- occur because there are independent moments of mitzvah on the way. And I, I want to have, I want to be a person who's, who, who's an oyev avrius. So that means I have to be one day I have to do Bika Cholman, one day I have to do Nicham Abela, one day I have to Achmasas Kala, and over time I build up a, a, a personal culture of Avas Abrisen. It's the same thing with, with um, having a home that is stable and peaceful and free of Machlaikas. It's not that I need a place that's free of Machlaikas, but I need a place that Kosh Baruch is comfortable. Today it means that I do a Maisa Mitzvah and uh, I compliment my wife. Today it means I do a Maisa Mitzvah and I concede on, on an issue. Today it means that I do a Maisa Mitzvah and my Maisa Mitzvah will be to diffuse an issue, to be misgaber and to be in a better mood. But every single moment, it's, it's like, it's a Hanachas Tzolan. It's a Lidvishas Tzitzis. It's another Maisa Mitzvah. So that approach, I found personally to be, to be often very, very helpful. And I think that it can be an approach that uh, can build very, very productive home life. Very good. Well, Rabbi Neuberger, I want to thank you so much for joining us. It's always a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Joining us now is Rabbi Peretz and Shoshana Siegel. Rabbi Peretz is the mashkiach in both the center program of Or Sameach and also the AIDS pre In addition, he has been training young couples, primarily men, through Ner Elef or Legola and the Jerusalem Kolo for the last decade. Rabbi Siegel, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be out with you, Ari. Great to have you as well. And Rebetzin Siegel, she is a marriage coach. She has been running marriage workshops and giving guidance in building better and happier relationships for a number of years. Her focus is teaching people how to connect and to resolve conflict. Rebetzin, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. It's exciting to be here. Already loving the dynamic, by the way, having a married couple who are both involved in marriage coaching and will be able to compare Rabbi Siegel's experiments, uh, experiments, experiences, and experiments <laughs> with with the men and, and the rabbits and Siegel with the women. So I'm going to start out with Rabbi Siegel. Rabbi Siegel, I- I'm sure you deal a lot with uh, not necessarily the the light side of marriages, but the challenges and difficulties of, of uh, marriage. And just so we can set the table, I'd love to hear what are the three biggest things that men complain about regarding their wives. This is to you that they complain. I'm not asking about what do they fight with their wives about. What what are the things that that really get on their uh, nerves? Right. So it's quite funny, Harry, because actually I did an exercise and I had a group of married men sitting around and I said, okay, write down the three things that you complain about the most. And they wrote down three things and it was quite jarring because the three things I wrote down actually 
wasn't the kind of stuff they'd come to speak to me about when they had real problems. So I kind of, I'll tell you what they wrote down. They wrote down money. You know, I don't know if it's only a function of Israel and kind of financial straits or whatever it is, but I think it's pretty common. Money. And, and that, was, that was their complaining that their wives spent. Complaining that their wives spent it. Um, how do how do you kind of deal with it and the way it's being dealt with? Um, they complained about location where they, where they're living, like you know, discontent about I want to go here, you want to go there, and they complained complained about um, kind of child education. That was that was what they wrote down in terms of when they come to me and complain. Um, they never say any of that. <laughs> they they speak about a lot of times. I think they there's enormous struggles with with intimacy issues. That's what they speak to me about. And there's also more generally, I would say, communication, um, being able to connect in the right way. So I think it was quite interesting how they almost wrote down glib answers. But underneath the surface, that's actually not what's going on. Underneath the surface, the, the issues are much more raw and they're much more real. Interesting. Very fascinating. Rebitson, same question for you about the young ladies that you coach. What are the three big complaints? And uh, are those the truth? If, <laughs> if you ask them to write it down, are they really recording? What are the big, big ticket items that they uh, that they get irked by regarding their husbands? Okay, so the trends that I hear often are kids. Kids, they're giving the kids either too many treats or not enough treats. Things like that. Anything to do with the kids. They're putting them to bed too early. They're not putting them to bed early enough. So children is a big thing. Help in the house. Or should I say lack thereof? <laughs> That's not a big thing. Not helping enough. Not helping enough. Yeah, very big thing. They there's many husbands out there who are leaving their coffee cups on the side instead of putting them in the sink. So not only are they not helping, but they're acting like a kid. Um, I wouldn't say acting like a kid because I wouldn't say that. But they are creating more help. M more needs. Yeah, instead of taking away the need of help. So that's a big thing. Um, a fun, another thing which is actually quite funny that they are that I have a lot of times coming up. We have whole sessions going around this topic is birthday presents. Whoa, that's uh, that I didn't expect. Interesting. <laughs> yes, birthday presents, anniversary presents, lots of very interesting and humorous and not so humorous stories about that. Interesting. I, I would have thought if we look at the lists here that they would align and they don't align at all. If you look at, at the rabbi's list, the, the official list, money, location, and chinuch, and the unofficial list, or more the accurate list, intimacy and communication. And I would have thought women would say intimacy, communication as well, and kids, husbands unhealthing, and appreciation, birthday gifts, anniversary gifts, and alike. So we are not aligned. We are not aligned. So these I would are add to that, if I could interrupt you, I would add to that finances. Um but I think it's a different way of relating to it than the men do, which is not surprising. Finances could be there in, in different ways. I don't know how my husband would say that comes out with the men, but finances in terms of my husband's saving enough, he's not saving enough. He's making me spend too much, not spend enough. So, so that's the one that overlaps between the yeah. two, money. Yeah. 
It all comes down to money. Okay, so so the next question is as follows. This is the things, these are the items that they come to speak with you about, but what are the things that they actually fight over, engage over with each other? Because it could be that they have these uh, pet thieves or issues that they have that they're upset about, but they don't discuss with the spouses. What are the things that make it to the list of things that they actually actively engage with the spouse? So Rebison, why don't we start with you on that? Well, it's it's a similar question because they're complaining and fighting over the same things. They'll come and complain to me about it, and then they'll go home and fight with their husbands about it. Um, they, they, there's a long list. <laughs> but, okay, but it's not a different list. In other words, when they come to speak with you, it these are the issues that they will engage their spouse with. Yes. I would add to that family, which means we're spending too much time with your family, not enough time with my family. We don't have enough time for my family. Um, I'd also add to that the husband himself. You're not doing enough dot, dot, dot. You're not doing enough learning, learning Tyra. You're not doing, you're not working hard enough. You're not getting up early enough for Minion. You're going, you're not spending enough time with this. So actually the husband is a big focus of that. Interesting. And, and and now we'll move over to Rabbi Siegel. Is, is, are they complaining that my wife thinks she's uh, my mashkiach or, uh, or is that not a complaint? So, so, so I definitely, I definitely get that. I definitely get the husbands feeling very criticized by their wives, you know, that they feel that they, they feel curtailed and like under, under ball and chain that my wife doesn't give me the freedom to do what I want to do. Um, and it can get, it can get quite extreme. One husband said to me, he his wife was at work and he went to meet a friend. And when he met his wife, after she finished, she said, where were you? And he said, well, I just met my friend. She said, but I didn't like that friend. And by you meeting with him, you're actually showing disrespect to me. Uh-huh. So, I mean, that's quite an extreme, an extreme case, but it's the, 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 the principle of the theme that I'm here to control your life and you have to do what I deem as appropriate. And if you step out of line, that's a problem. And I think a lot of husbands feel it's kind of conflicted emotion. On the one hand, they feel restricted. Sometimes they feel like bad about themselves, like they're not doing what they should be doing because I should be like kind of following what my wife says. And it causes a lot of internal conflict and sometimes like a sense of guilt. Interesting. Now, uh, Rabbitson, do the women feel criticized by the husbands or is that just a one-way street with the husbands feeling criticized by the wives yeah it's not it's not a common topic that i'm coming up with of being the women being criticized that's fascinating that's i I wonder why i wonder why that will leave for another show are women (laughs) more critical than men okay so let's go on to the next question (laughs) rabbi we're not no one wants to touch that one so so rabbi siegel as as follows do men and women fight differently or are there common aspects about how they fight is there shouting silent treatment or is this is it a male female thing how they approach disagreement controversy or is this more of a subjective thing for each person or each couple, how they deal with it? Look, I think it's there are some recurring themes, but I do think that there's a lot of subjectivity. And it's, it's even subjectivity in that couple's marriage. Sometimes the man will be more like this, and sometimes the wife will be more like that. The general themes which come out is I do feel that men generally feel more... Um, rationally sound in their approach. Like, I can't believe she said that. It just makes no sense. 
Um, they interpret things more literally and with more causality, whereas it seems if is women are responding to, to emotions. So actually, as a follow-up from that first story with a guy who kind of, you can't see your friend, um, when I spoke to him more about it, it really came out that his wife was saying, you're not seeing me. But she, and like his initial response was, that's just like completely irrational. Like it makes no sense. But of course it makes no sense because that's not, she's actually telling him. She's not saying, don't be friendly with him. She's saying, I want to be seen. So there's this kind of, she'll, uh, that's the kind of, it goes into the communication, like men like, say what you mean. And sometimes the wives say X and they mean Y. So I do, I do, I do get that a lot where it's almost like speaking different languages. Interesting. And and Rebetzin Siegel, would you agree that women are more emotional in their in their approaches and men more rational? Is that what you hear from the women? Um, actually, I don't. I wouldn't generalize like that. I have some extremely rational women who have done very male. Um, what's the word? Male kind of degrees and education. And I have some very emotional men. So I wouldn't be. I would say that everything is some. Couples will shout or some people, spouses will shout, some people will back off, some people will argue loudly. I wouldn't say there's a general way of arguing. I would say every person is totally different in the way they argue. I think that's an emotional response. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's terrific. No. <laughs> okay, so obviously we, we want to talk about the issues and the problems, so we'll also we want to talk about solutions, because that's that's what our focus. Um, but uh, I'm not sure if this is a solution or, or still uh, focused on the uh, challenges. But uh, the next question is, what is each looking to accomplish when engaging in a controversy? Is it simply I want to get my way or are we looking for a solution? Is there a thought as to when I engage in a controversy, what do I want to accomplish? Do I just want to get it my way or do we want to look at the communal good? So, um, Rebetson, why don't we start with you on that one? Uh, is there a goal? Is there yes. a goal? Yes, I think this is the basis and I don't think it's relevant whether you're a man or a woman. I think that when everyone is anyone is engaged in a controversy or conflict anywhere, the basis, the foundation of a conflict is I want to change you. So we actually, when we first got married, um, I'm embarrassed to say this, but I'm okay saying this because maybe it'll make other people feel better. When we got married and my husband moved in, we were very newlywed. I went through my husband's clothes as how, as he was unpacking and I said, okay, this, this sweater garbage, this sweater garbage, you can keep the sweaters that I like and you can't keep the sweaters that, that, that I don't like. Music, all your CDs, okay, those are going into the garbage because I don't like them. So uh, for me, this is a basis. Luckily, my husband is actually a nice guy and it didn't become a conflict, but it, it could have become a conflict. And the basis of this is I want to change you either to something that I choose or I want to change you to be me. You must only wear the clothes that I like or that I choose. So the basis of all conflict is you may not be you in this situation. And it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be a whole relationship. It can just be a specific point in a relate in, in the marriage. But in, when the, when someone's meeting a point of conflict, it's because I'm saying in this area, you may not be you. You have to be me. So I was saying to my husband when we got married, you may not have your tasting clothes. When I got married, I said to my husband, you, you don't have any tasting clothes. You have to have my tasting clothes because your taste is bad. So I was saying to him, in this in in in, in dress in dress mode, you may not dress how you would like to dress. You have to dress how I like to dress. So 
So I'm either trying to change him to be me or I'm trying to, to change him to be something that I want him to be, but I'm not allowing him to be who he is. That's the basis. If you look very deeply, that's the basis of conflicts. I'm not I'm not seeing you. You have to now be like me. That's a great story. Now, if, if a young lady came to you and said, um, we just moved in, we got married, we, we're, we moved in, and I don't like a lot of his clothing and, and we don't have CDs anymore, but uh, whatever it may be of, of his possessions, what advice would you give her at this point, having been through that? I, I, well, first of all, I would laugh very hard and tell her what I did to my husband. I have since I've since bought every single sweater since we got married 32 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> so he's actually got my taste now, which is clearly far superior to his. But um, I would say to him, I would ask her, well, what would your husband like to wear? Which sweaters would your husband like to wear? Interesting. So, so Rabbi Siegel, let's go to you on this one. And uh, what do you see? Certainly from, from the men's side, what are they trying to accomplish in controversy? Would you agree with your wife on this, or do you have a different take on it? So first of all, I'm still kind of smarting from the trauma of having my sweaters thrown away and her case <laughs> imposed upon me. But if I move, if I move past that, I actually, I, I agree. And I, I mean, I've got the, kind of the same story, but the other way around. Um, culturally, I'm very South African, and my, my wife is British. Uh, South Africans are warm, loving, encouraging, um, engaging. British people are cold and standoffish. Now, when when we were first married, to me there was, I am right and she's wrong. You're like You can't be cold and standoffish. That's just not a way to be. That's just not on. So after we have guests, I call aside and say, you know, Shana, I just have to tell you that the way you interact with those guests was just completely wrong. That you just you can't just like not warmly embrace people and like engage them in kind of a hello, how's it? How you doing? kind of conversation. They're just inappropriate. Um, and it took me a long time to realize that, well, that's because I want her to be me. And she's coming from a very different culture, the very different perspective, with a different way of interacting. And the truth is, I don't I have no idea how people are responding to her, but in my mind, she has to be me. So I come and I'm trying to enforce that on her. Boom, comes the conflict where I'm trying to make her into me. And so I actually, I completely, you know, I've, I've not only relate to what Shoshani is saying, but actually in our own marriage, I think we've experienced that conflict. And I think we've come through and seen the other side and experienced the liberation of what happens when we see each other and we're not trying to, kind of um, compel the other one just to be an extension of myself, which is ultimately the not seeing in its deepest form. Very interesting. Okay, we are aligned on that one. So so let's be proactive now. And uh, the, the question then is not what do people try to accomplish, but what should they be looking to accomplish in controversy? And I guess we're now uh, migrating over to the question when there's controversy between a couple how do we deal with the controversy? So what should be the common goal of them? I guess it should be a common goal if we're looking to get over the controversy. I guess more it's a question for you. What should they be looking to accomplish and should they both be trying to accomplish the same thing? Who wants to start with that one? Me. <laughs> <laughs> it's yours, Reverend. There's, there's one, uh, that's a very easy question. What should they be looking to accomplish when there's a controversy or conflict? I mean, to me, the, the answer is obvious. They should be looking to solve the problem. They shouldn't be looking to knock the other spouse. They shouldn't be looking to change the other spouse. They shouldn't be looking to discredit him. Anything. They should, What? okay, we have a problem here. How do we solve it? It's very clean. It's nothing personal. It's, it's an objective. We have an issue and let's deal with the issue. Exactly. 
Interesting. We, have, we win together or we lose together. We both have a problem. So we're either going to win together. We're on the same team. The message that we should be giving each other the whole time is we're on the same team. We win together, we lose together. So we have a problem. How are we going to solve it? Right, right. And Rabbi Siegel, would you agree with that? Yeah, totally. And I think that obviously the complexity goes back to the previous point, which is in order for that to really occur, I need to be able to step out of myself and see the other. Because as long as it's, as long as I'm caught up in my own head, so then it's not about the problem, it's about you becoming me. Um, the, the, the kind of the recognition is, no, no, it's not about you becoming me or me becoming you. It's about let's solve this, let's solve this problem so we can move forward as a team. I just want to add something that I get repeated um, comments on. And one lady, actually, they come to me and they say when they're learning as a Kala, they're given rules. So a famous rule, which I don't know if they still give, is never go to sleep angry with your husband. OK, so there's another an, another rule. Is, I don't know if they're still giving that. Another rule is um, during supper, you have to talk to your husband, you know, no reading, no anything else. You have to sit and you have to, you know, sit and spend quality time with your husband. I have had this repeatedly where the Kalas come with the rule. And they say, Shoshana, can I do this? And I say to them, well, and it's against every single rule in the book. And I say, well, does it bother your husband or does he want to do what you want to do? He says, no, my husband actually wants to do what I want to do. And then I say, well, what do you want to do? I ask the wife. And she says, well, I actually want to do the same. Both of us want to do the same thing, but it's not in the rules that we were taught as a Hassan and Kala. And I say, it works for you and it works for your husband, go for it. And I've had ladies standing in front of me at the end of workshops, literally, I see their body change, their shoulders relax, and they they have a whole look of relief on their face. Really, I don't have to do that. And when somebody gives someone a rule, you can never give rules. You cannot say that every single Hassan and every single Kala in the world, you can't say to a Kala, your husband needs a hot meal at the end of every day. The stories that the Kala is taught, you have to give your husband a hot meal at the end of every day. And the Hassan comes back and he's, you know, he doesn't know how to tell his wife who's just spent two hours making him a hot, hot dish. So he says, you know, I don't really like soup and I don't really like squash until eventually he says, you know what, for supper, all I want is hummus and pita. So you can never give rules. If a Hassan and Kala are given a rule that doesn't speak to them and it doesn't work for them, they should go speak to a teacher. They should speak to their Hassan teacher. They should speak to their Kala teacher, not the one that gave them the rule. Or they should speak to their rabbi or they should use their Seichel. A rule doesn't apply to everybody. And I see it repeatedly. There are no rules. Rules is what works for you and what works for him. That's the rule. Seichel is probably the most important of the uh, uh, of the items to use when it comes to those type of rules, I would assume. Uh, yes. I'm going to direct this question to, to Rebbitson Siegel. Rebbitson Siegel, there's a controversy, there are fights that can have an impact on uh, on this question. How should you handle yourself during conflict? So you handle it as a controversy, a discussion, a fight. And uh, if you could speak both to the men and women, is it the same or is it different for each of them? Okay, so this is a really a long topic, but I'm just going to say it in short point form. But it's so, so, so important. When I say it to the women, they like their eyes open wide, like, oh, my gosh, am I really doing that? So the first thing is when we're having an argument, are we looking at our argument at our husband or wife at eye level? Or are we feeling totally superior to them? So I'll give you an example. Say our husband or wife comes in and has a cup of coffee and leaves the coffee cup on the side. 
Okay, so when they have an argument about it, is the husband, is the wife or the husband looking at their spouse saying, he's tired, it's the end of the day, he's having a heart, it's not a big deal, I'll wash the cup, I'll put it in the sink. Or are they looking, what are they saying to their spouse without, word, without words? This is so important. The thoughts that we have when we see this coffee cup is they don't see me, they're arrogant, they think I'm their slave, they are so selfish, they've got no idea how much I work all day, and they would never do this if they really cared about me. So these are all the things they're saying without words. Now, our spouse feels what we say, even when we don't verbalize it and verbalize it. So if I would go to my spouse and actually say to my spouse with words, you're arrogant, you don't care about me, you don't see me, you don't see how hard I work, you're so selfish, you don't do anything at all to help around the house, is that going to motivate them to then put their cup in the sink? If anybody would talk to anybody like that with words, would they would they want to help? It's not going to motivate anyone. So when we're having a conflict, it's so important to, and this is, this is the tools of how you actually get to this point, again, of mutual respect and mutual appreciation how do you get to the point where you're seeing your spouse at eye level instead of looking down on them if you have a conflict with somebody where you are not on eye level you're either feeling superior or inferior the person who's feeling superior is going to be saying all of the verbal saying all of these things without verbalizing them and that's how the spouse is going to hear it. And the person who's feeling inferior is going to either attack them back or justify and defend themselves. So when you're having a conflict, not at eye level, it's not going to be resolved because those are the two dynamics in the relationship. Either you're telling me all these negative things without actually saying it, but I know you're thinking them, or I feel inferior to you, therefore I'm going to attack you back and justify myself. That's how a conflict is not going to be resolved. So we spend so much effort and so much time trying to change our spouse. You have to be like like me and act like me and change into what I want you to be. You can never change anyone. The only person you can ever change is yourself. So if we take all this energy that we use to change our spouse the whole time, put the cup in the sink, put the cup in the sink. And what do we say it day in and day out and day in and day out? Nothing ever changes. We could take that same energy and change ourselves. Take the 10 seconds to put the cup in the sink, wash it. You solve the problem. You bring your husband back to eye level or your wife back to eye level and there's no conflict. If he didn't live with me, he wouldn't have that problem. He'd be okay with that cup on the sink. I'm the one that doesn't want the cup on the sink. So I can just put it in the sink. There's no conflict. Interesting. So a number of thoughts there. Number one is your thoughts and feelings do come through during controversy. Number two is pick your battles. Pick your battles. It's more than pick your battles, but yes. Think of how you are. Would you like to be related to like that? Very good. Well said. Right. So Rabbi Siegel, final question. Um, is there a goal? Should it be a goal to have no controversy at all? For example, let's carve out spheres and uh, the husband decides on the Ruchnius issue or the Gashmius issue and the wife will decide on and carve out your respective spheres and the wife gets the Chinuch or the husband gets certain areas of Chinuch. And that way we are going to avoid all controversy and uh, you'll each have your respective domains and make the decisions. Is that a, is that a good way to deal with things or is that not a good de- way to deal with things okay so i, th- I think there, there's two points to this first of all number one would be let's let's isolate the notion of conflict being good or bad i'm i'm actually a big believer in conflict i think i think conflict is probably one of the greatest catalysts of growth in any relationship and it's almost an impossibility to avoid it because if i'm showing up with my authentic self and you showing up with your authentic self the chances of those two authentic selves aligning in every possible way, agreeing on every possible thing is almost non-existent. And if we are having no conflict, what's probably happening is we're projecting false personas 
who are relating to one another, and the real people are stuck behind these masks, never connecting. And I've actually seen this repeatedly, that especially within the from world, um, Hassans and colors are given these like directives of how you should respond. When he says this, say this. When she does this, say this. And as a result, no one feels comfortable being himself because being himself is wrong. How can I criticize her cooking? How can I not walk into the into the home without a big smile on my face? So what happens is you have him presenting persona A, her who's taught by a color teacher. You always have to have the steaming hot, you know, meal on, on, on the table so that when he comes home, because men are hungry and all these kind of cliches. So she's being the perfect wife, he's being the perfect husband, and him and her never meet. So I actually think conflict is an incredibly healthy, powerful, and um, amazing catalyst to growth and brings intimacy with a kind of a caveat. When done properly, meaning, and, and I think the truth is what I'm doing really is, is saying over what I heard from my Rebbe and my Rebbe is my wife. So <laughs> she's going to perhaps take it a bit further and explain the, the, the methodology of it. Okay, so Rebbe, please take it from there. Okay, conflict in and of itself is definitely not the problem. The com- the way is how is it done? So that's the, that's so. There's a lot to say on this, and and now is not enough time to say it. But the whole um, point of a conflict is not the topic of the conflict. Is, is how are we? How am I arguing? It means if you have an argument with somebody that you see, you respect, and you appreciate, it's going to be a very different argument, or not even argument, conversation, or conflict resolving. If you're looking at somebody who you feel contempt towards, and you feel that he is inferior to you, and he's failed you in so many different ways, and ah, uh, again, he's doing this, it's going to be a very different conflict than if you are looking at somebody at eye level. So in other words, without respect and mutual respect, this is going to be a different, difficult way to deal with controversy. Basic respect, mutual respect and appreciation is absolutely vital for, for a relationship and conflict resolving in a very peaceful, calm way. The question is, how do you get to that point? And that is why the workshop doesn't take one 20 minute or half an hour session. Yes, it's a very slow buildup of the tools and getting someone to understand how do you get to that point when I really, um, I, I am angry with my husband. He really has done this again and again and again. So how do you have the conflict in a in a respectful way? So the basic for basis for having a, a respectful argument is mutual respect and understanding and appreciation. And the lack of that is the base of conflict and arguments. Well, that is a big topic. I think we're going to have to resume for another show, <laughs> another topic in the future on building mutual respect in marriage. That is a very interesting topic. Rabbi and Rebetzin Siegel, I want to thank you so much for joining us. Greatly appreciate it. If anyone wants to reach either Rabbi or Rebetzin Siegel, they can be reached via the website mindmovers.org, mindmovers.org. Rabbi Siegel, he also is a corporate trainer and an executive coach, or Mrs. Siegel for marriage workshops. That would be the address to go to. And uh, I learned a lot. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank Ari. you. It was great being with you. Thank you so much.
Joining us now is Mrs. Hani Juravel. Mrs. Juravel is a popular lecturer worldwide and is a therapist in Rockland County, New York. She has spent three decades in the worlds of chinuch and counseling. I didn't know if I should say world or worlds of chinuch and counseling because there's so much overlap there. In her private practice, she treats individuals and couples, and she also deals with a lot of shalom bias and conflict resolution issues. Mrs. Juravel, thank you so much for joining us. It's always a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for joining us. Well, why don't we start with a basic question, something that I find fascinating. Is there a difference between men and women in the issues that they engage in conflict over? It's actually two questions, two questions in one. And not only the issues that they uh, engage in conflict, conflict, war, whatever word we want to use, um, and how they engage in conflict, is that different as well? Well, I think in general, the way they engage and, you know, that what what men and women seek, not that, you know, there aren't exceptions, but um, I think generally women really need to feel appreciated and and needed um, and need to be reassured of that. I think men very much need to be respected and trusted and need to be reassured of that. So sometimes just knowing that is, you know, helps shift things. So, um now, being mindful of of each one's core need might might make conversation a lot easier. So, uh, you know, if a man, let's say, doesn't compliment enough for him, it might be, you know, condescending. Well, you know, I trust you. Why would I need to compliment for a woman that might be her oxygen? So just understanding what what's at the core of of each of our needs is such an important thing to communicate, you know, without just assuming So and- that that might be an important difference. And in, if, in addition to many. And, and if that is lacking, you're saying that can cause conflict from the other, that can cause a lack that a woman is feeling if she's not getting the praise or if the husband's not feeling the respect and that can cause the the divide. Definitely. Between. Yeah. When 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 our core needs are are not being felt and, and needed, it's it's hard. You know, we're hungry and and people get cranky when they're hungry for what they really need. That's that's a very good uh Marshall, that's a very good marshal to the to the goof and the neshama. So, how about that second question? How they engage in conflict or or express their needs to the other? Is it different or is it uh, similar? Well, or is you know, let let's you know, I, I don't know that we have to stay to a gender specific conversation. I, I think that more important in general, any conflict, you know, there there's some things to keep in mind that um, that might shift confrontation into education, you know, teaching each other about our needs. I think the first thing is that um, no matter how long a couple's married, their definitions of of the same word, the same experience, the same consequence might be totally different. And without getting to that place of just being curious about what does this mean to you or um, you know, what, what's that word even about? I, I don't know if I ever shared this, but um, many years ago, um, a really lovely couple came in and, and they said that, you know, they, they had been for a lot of help and, and this was an issue that they couldn't get, get through. The wife felt that the husband didn't trust her and he kept reassuring her, I trust you. You know, you chose our neighborhood, the kids' schools, total transparency in our in our monies. You, you chose my clothes. You know, I, I trust you. And she's shaking her head. And um, and I said, I know this sounds ridiculous to ask, but could you each define the word trust? So he defined the word pretty much, you know, sort of like the dictionary. And uh, and the wife's shaking her head. I said, what does trust mean to you? And she said, trust means agree. And he said, all these years, you've been meaning that I don't always agree with you. 
he said, you're right. I don't always agree, but I trust you implicitly. And that opened up a whole conversation about, you know, where that need came from in her childhood, you know, why it was historic and why just being given into didn't feel the same as being agreed with. And not that, you know, he was able to turn around and agree with everything, but just to have that empathy, just to realize that the same word could mean a world of a difference. You know, the word family, the word respect, the the word enough, you know, all these definitions that that might be very, very different. So no matter how long we're married, we can't really assume that we're ever 100% on the same page in terms of our interpretations and expectations. So curiosity is, is going to be big all the time. Yeah, that's interesting. You, you mentioned it doesn't matter how long you've been married, you may still have those differences. So that's, a, that's fascinating. So that, that leads to my next question, the main cause of conflict. You, you mentioned here that it's somewhat... Uh, ha- history, how they were brought up, issues that they had maybe as childhood as that as that young lady or older lady had um, because she grew up with whatever issues there were and she needed somebody to agree with her as, a best, as opposed to just trusting in her. So what would you say the main cause of conflict is when com- people come to you and it's this husband or the wife or both? Is it because the genders are different or because they have different upbringings, different communication skills or different uh, dictionaries that they define words as differently? What, what's the core difference or is there not one? Y- yes to all. Yes to all. You nailed them all. And, and I'm sure there more. I think it's, you know, more importantly is is that sometimes we're just so afraid of having conflict, you know, and, and what that means. And this must not be a good marriage. And and it a lot of it could be normalized by realizing that by definition, we are going to be different people. And, you know, respecting each other's differences once we understand them is really what 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 is going to heal the marriage in so many important ways. I, I was at a, a wedding of um, an old student of mine and uh, her parents are just very, very lovely, special, special people. They became Balei Chuva together, remarkable couple. And the husband got up to speak at, at this wedding. It was you know a, a religious wedding, something he dreamed what, dreamed of. And he said, I have to thank my wife for this journey. He said, we've we've really, um, we're not always on the same book page, but we've been writing the same book chapter by chapter. Some chapters are hers, some chapters are mine. And I thought that was so brilliant that he came with a sense of serenity to to respect and accept, you know, the chapters that that she wrote. And um, just knowing that we can't be the same people, because otherwise the marriage would not allow for shlemut. It wouldn't allow for, for creating completion. So, so often couples will say, you know, but I get along so well with my friends, and I never had this with, you know, other people. And and it's because those people don't offer you the same thing that marriage is meant to. So coming to respect each other's differences, as opposed to one being right or one being wrong, is going to be a big, a, a big change in, in just the thoughts of what, what marriage means. And once we do that, to realize that from a place of empathy, I could understand that your need to you is as critical as mine is to me. I'll give you an important example that I think almost every couple might experience. And again, it's not gender specific, but very often in each marriage, one one partner, when there is a conflict, needs isolation. They need to sort of have their own space, have some time to think about it. 
and and not react impulsively. The other partner, while that one's an isolator, is usually a fuser. They need to fuse. We have to work this out. We can't go to sleep until we figure this out. You know, you can't be angry at me. We have to do this immediately, put everything else away. So you have two very opposing needs. One really needs the space. One really needs the reassurance of fixing it immediately. How do those two people get along, right? So the first thing is, can can you imagine that as much as you need that space, your partner really, really needs that resolution? So just to hold each other in that space of understanding, realize how much you need what you need. And that's that's exactly what your partner is craving in terms of how important their need is. And now once you realize that, what might they need from you? Okay, so you could isolate, but before you do, can you assure me of, you know, what the longest will be or that you love me and and that this won't ruin us so that I could sleep tonight? Or you need, you know, can you just, if you need to fuse, can you ask me one question and, and put the rest on hold? But you hear where I'm going. Yes. That having that, yeah. So what's the differences between spouses? So uh, you're saying that each should recognize that the other has differences and needs and theirs is just as important and significant to them as it is to you. Should exactly. We these uh, differences as, as something negative? Should we view it as something positive? You, you talked about, uh, and I, li- I like the uh, analogy of writing a, a book together. Maybe we're not on the same page, but at least it's the same book. But at what point do we say that we're writing different books? And maybe it's an indication that we don't belong together. That may come to mind when people are really constantly or regularly in conflict between each other. And uh, when is it that we're writing the same book and we're in different chapters and different pages? Or when are we just writing in different languages, different books? That, that, that's such such an important question and, and such a difficult one to answer, um, you know, in, in a way that's that's practical, because everybody's tolerance threshold, everybody's sense of equilibrium and safety, you know, it, it, there, there's so many layers to that, you know, to that decision. Um, you know, I, I think that just realizing that, you know, I, I remember the first analogy I ever learned when I was a girl, you know, that divorce was a necessary amputation, right? Just, just recognizing that, you know, this limb may have to be amputated, but but let's let's know that that's really a, a last ditch effort, and it would be so terribly sad. So, you know, whatever that last ditch means to each party is is unique, and you no, know, it has to be respected. But um, but I I don't know if there's a one size fits all answer. You know, so I I I met a I had a woman that I was working with many years ago, an incredibly incredibly resilient person. And um, she came to work on, on an issue with a child of hers. And I noticed she wasn't wearing a wedding band. And uh, and she told me about a terrible betrayal that she had gone through in her marriage. And I just assumed that that meant she was a single parent because I couldn't imagine anyone being married after what she went through. So after she told me her story with the child, you know, I, I said, it must be hard going through this alone. She said, what makes you think I'm alone? So I, I said, I just assumed, you know, she says, no. She said, that was the worst thing that ever happened to me in my marriage. I see marriage as a bank account. There's deposits, there are withdrawals. That totally wiped out his account. And he had to know that. And I gave him six months to see if he could get it together and start making deposits that would make me feel hopeful. And he did. And it's been 18 years now. And we, we have a strong marriage. And, um, and he's accountable for that. So 
I, I was in awe. I was in awe that a woman had that capacity to not compromise her standards. You know, he had to get it right, but to allow a second chance, you know, so someone else, you know, I, I would never judge for, for, for never having that stamina or, or desire. So it, it's so unique. And what she a person, still, she yeah. still wasn't wearing the ring after 18 years. Yeah, that, that, was, that was water retention. <laughs> I thought she was no, keeping on my notice, keeping on my notice 18 years later. You know, maybe subconsciously you could be right. You could... <laughs> yeah. So why don't we move forward? We, we talked about the problem, and now let's go to the solution or solution. So when a uh, husband or a wife or the couple comes to you, what are the methods, method or methods that you use to help a couple deal with their conflicts, conflict resolution? Okay. I, I think that there are a lot of tools, you know, Baruch Hashem over the years that, you know, that I, I've added to the toolbox. I, I know that there are some therapists that have one specific derech and, you know, I, I don't know that that, you know, that that's always practical because there's so many different types of people and needs. So uh, Imago therapy going, if people have the, you know, the, the ability and the depth to go back to childhood and, and realize what it was that they were lacking or what it was that was familiar that they might be reenacting or, or looking for that that's always very powerful i think on a very practical level number one is to normalize the concept of conflict just you know when we realize saros rabim chatinachama you know that that this is normal that every good marriage at one, at least at one point, could have or should have been divorced, you know, and and that that you could work through this, and it could really be something you'll be proud of. Just to normalize that and give hope when there is room for for hope, and usually there is. Another another, um, and like we said, curiosity without assuming, you know, just no matter how long you know a person, to realize that there's room for curiosity, there's room to hear them out, and 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 what you see as the top floor right of what you're dealing with might not really be where the conversation has to be i think the method that that i i really appreciate couples learning is um called abc if a is, stands for action right and c stands for consequence let's say you step on my foot that's your action the consequence is i'm angry at you is it that your action created my consequence maybe not because there could be four people whose foot got stepped on and they all react differently, right? One might be angry, one might be understanding, one might say like, I do it too, it's no problem. So it's not an action that creates a consequence. In between A and C is B. It's your belief about that action. So maybe I believed that, you know, that you didn't care enough about, about where I was standing you know, and, and you weren't being sensitive enough. Maybe somebody else believes that you just didn't get enough sleep and you didn't notice, right? So we keep ourselves embroiled in the conversations of A and C. How could you and this and that? And, and we have our own analysis of what it's about. But bringing the conversation to B is really where the education comes from. You know, it, it seems like you really didn't like that. What, what did that mean to you? So just bumping it up to that that B conversation, does that make sense? I think that's a huge tool for couples to gain. And, um, you know, and, and, and also I learned this years ago from a supervisor of mine, and, and I think it's so beautiful that so much of it is about equalizing. Like we talked about before, teaching that, you know, who I am and you are might be different, but we each deserve respect. 
And and she taught me this in helping a couple I was working with. And, and it was really a, a wonderful tool that to think of three virtues that that I have and what I'm proud of in terms of who I am, and then say, okay, and what are the three virtues that my spouse has? To sort of realize that, you know, we're both, we're both people that that have that have pluses, that have milos. Now think of three chesronos, three lackings of your partner, and now think of three of your own. Realize that neither one of you is all or nothing, and that you both are deserving of that respect and 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 you're both parallel human beings in a beautiful way you know so just to start creating that sense of equality maybe in the way that i most wanted my spouse to be and act or or provide maybe that's lacking maybe there are a lot of other pluses here that that i need that i gain from the spouse and vice versa Maybe it's hard for me to have patience, but you know, I, I'm not, there, there was a, I was at a meeting many years ago at someone's house and uh, there was a, a, a man that walked in, not too young. He was already in his high forties, very eligible bachelor. So uh, one of the women, women broke up the meeting and said, you know what, what's with you? We have to think of somebody for you. And she threw out a name and, and, um, and he said, well, that's not really what I'm looking for. And, and he, he put out what he was looking for. And one of the older women in the group, um, I guess she had a right to say this at her age. She says, well, that sounds like a perfect person. Why would a perfect person be interested in you? Oh, boy. <laughs> and believe it or not, he said that was a really good wake up call, you know, just to be asked that question. So whenever someone says, you know, I could have done better, you know, my answer is, you know, we, we do have to mourn that. It's true. But the truth is, all of us could have done better because none of us is, you know, none of us are, are, are the best. So whoever you're married in, in some ways could have also done better. You know, we just have to be realistic with that and, right. and equalize. Right. So th these are some very good methods. Uh, on a high level, it's get to know the other person better. I'd say the ABC is trying to really understand the other person, not just what happened, action, consequence, but the understanding of why it happened, going to the next level. The, no, the, the Yeah. And, and the belief that they have about what happened. Of why it happened. Let's say it's understanding their filter is what it right. is. And, right. and the three virtues are being more positive. Also the three negatives, but it's, but it's, but it's, it's trying to, to understand the positive side of other people and trying to get real with each other. So, well, so to equalize the, the positivity and the negativity that each of us is yes. not all or nothing, right? right. Each right. of us has both. Now, these are methods that people could do with their spouses. They they don't need a third party to get involved. But at, no. at a certain point, if they can't reach a decision, if they're just uh, banging heads against the wall or against each other, at, at what point do you call in uh, the reinforcements, a third party, and, and who should that person be? Well, I, I think, you know, obviously, you know, a rub should be the first, you know, um, the first person called if, if there are differences in, in running their homes, you know, hashkafically or halachically, you know, I, but in terms of, you know, just the, the couplehood itself, I think if you're, if a couple finds themselves cycling in the same theme, you know, the same arguments keep coming up, the same, um, you know, misunderstandings, the same feelings of frustration or lack of safety that, you know, it, we're good people and we try, but we just keep cycling in it. Or one partner doesn't feel heard and things like that, that, that we deserve to, to learn how to, how to get it better. And, 
just having that outsider, you know, might be a very, very important thing. I, I you know, I, I think a therapist would, would be the right address. Right. You know, and, uh, and, um, and, and I do think that it's important also to research um, that therapist's mindset. You know, it's very simple to be the type of therapist that says, just says boundaries and you deserve better. And, you know, or is this therapist someone who believes in, in work being necessary? And, you know, and having that patience to really hear both sides and not make it about one being right or wrong and, and just getting that quick fix. So it, it's it's really important. You know, I, I think that the goal of, of a marriage therapist should be that there it's not ever about right or wrong. It's about how do we, of course, think there are things that are black and white, right and wrong. But in the terms of the normative issues, it's about how do we get this dance right? And the way to know that a couple could be successful in therapy is if each partner is able to see his or her piece in it. If they always think it's about the other, it's it, it's going to be a waste. Mm -hmm. um, I actually have a couple specific questions. Um, one is uh, honesty. You know, Chazal tell us that uh, one of the reasons, and there aren't many, but one of the reasons that it's permitted to lie or to fib is to, uh, for Shalom Bayes purposes. So from a uh, therapeutic perspective, what what's your view on, should spouses always tell the truth to the other, or are there times that they should not? That's great. You're, you're great with the questions. I, I think one place you see that in the Torah is where Avraham had really said Sarah was old, and then he retold it saying that he was old, right? So I think that's a great place when it comes to not being 100% honest. You know, when, when, when one spouse asks, you know, how do I look? Or do you think I gained weight? That That's not a place to be honest. <laughs> so Avraham, knowing that, you know, that, that Sarah shouldn't have to hear it, you know, that that way was was critical. I, I think I want to look at this question a different way. Honesty, of course, is is absolutely so critical when it comes to building trust and earning trust. And, you know, you're not on solid ground if, you know, if, if you don't know that the other person will be honest. I was working for someone years back that I, I really didn't trust. And I, I out and out asked him, you know, can I trust you? And he said, 95% of the time, I said, well, then I would probably always choose to think it's that 5%, right? So honesty is, is important. The question, if I have a spouse who isn't honest across the board, you know, I see that he's saying things to other people or in business, okay, then we're talking a problem. But if someone is generally honest and in the relationship, they seem not to be, my question would be, not that I'm not saying honesty is a problem here, but is there a reason that the spouse is finding it difficult to be honest? Are you the Kaylee? Are you the other partner able to hear what's honest in a way that makes it comfortable and safe to share what's honest? Now, I'll give you an example that um, many, many years back, there was a, I, I got a call at 11 o'clock at night, a couple that I had worked with that, you know, had been doing well, I hadn't heard from, and they had a crisis, we, we have to come in, it, it, it's urgent. And I I, I I actually got dressed again and, and went down to my office, they came in, I, I they were just so dysregulated. And uh, she came home from um, from a, a full day with, with her children, and there was a padlock on their door, and the house was repossessed. So um, it, it was it was devastating. 
terribly embarrassing. You know, they, they lived in a, a pretty crowded neighborhood and and um and it turned out that he maxed out on on a lot of you know a lot of monies that that he owed and had things under her name as well. And it, it was a huge mess. So um she had no idea. She thought they were very, very comfortable and she spent a lot of money. So he, he was crying. I, I felt for both of them. It was awful. He was crying and and she said, I don't understand. Don't you trust me? You know, you, you didn't tell me. You know, I had no idea. And he said, you're absolutely right. And I know I didn't tell you, but I have a question that I need you to ask, answer honestly. If I did tell you, could you have handled it? Would you have changed your spending if I told you? And I was so incredibly impressed with both of them. She said, honestly, I don't think so. And and that was the beginning of, of real work for both of them. What money meant, you know, what her expectations of him were, you know, how much he was able to admit a lack of lack of success or, or a need to, you know, address their, their finances. So they had a lot of really good work to do. And they did that good work. It, it was very, very brave of them. But at that point, it's not that he was a dishonest person. He was afraid to share what he thought she wouldn't make room for. So do you hear where I'm going? Yes, that, that's a very complicated area. When I was talking about honesty, I was more focused on if the wife asked, did you eat the last brownie or something like that? Oh, okay. <laughs> no, they're, they're all important issues. Yeah. They're all, they're all, they're all. And, like, and you know, and, and I think you could apply that too, that let's say he did, and he would love to share that he did. And her belief about that would mean that, you know, you put yourself first and, and it would cause this whole upheaval instead of, so what her belief about that brownie is might be just so heavy and lengthy that he might not tell her the truth. Again, I'm not I, I'm not saying that that's OK, but both parties have to look at at what the truth would mean and how to make it safe enough to share it with each other. And what it represents, that could be something that's very significant. Yeah. Yeah. So let me ask one final question. Uh, what would you consider to be a successful fight controversy in marriage? And what would you say is a uh, an unsuccessful or, or a failure when it comes to controversy in marriage? I love that question because, yeah, fights are not, you know, either or. So and, and not fighting is, is not always ideal either. So I think that um, successful would look like both feeling heard both feeling that their point was understood and validated and that rather than the details being the emphasis, that the theme and the meaning behind the details were emphasized so that each walked out with an understanding and appreciation for, for why this is what it is to my spouse. So your, your question could then be, so what do they do if they still don't see it the same way, right? And, you know, and, and there, I think the answers could vary. You know, sometimes it might be, you know, halachic call that has to be made or, you know, which way the family has to be directed. Sometimes we could just sit with this and agree to disagree and respect each other. Sometimes one could gift the other as much as I'm not wrong, but I want to gift you this. I see it means a lot to you. And, you know, I, I'd like the privilege of gifting this to you. Um, so, you know, because I, I, I do just want you to have that. So I, I think that that would be success, you know, and 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 being able after the fight or even while the fight is still you know being figured out to not stay stuck on it. You could theoretically have that difference and still play a board game that night or, you know, still go out the way you wanted to. 
So to, to realize that our marriage is more than just this fight or just this issue, you know, and, and I, I think if we can't do that, we're cheating ourselves out of the deposits that could really smooth the feelings of, of the withdrawal and what that's doing to us. So anytime we get stuck in all or nothing, you know, it's this or else, or to just challenge that, you know, is that, is that really the case? You know, Hashem puts up with so much and, and still gives, you know, and I, I, I love the piece I saw in the Nesivo Shalom a while back. He said, if you ever want to understand what it means to have true feeling and, and Rachmanis, he said, think, what did we eat the morning after the Egel? The morning after the golden calf, what did we eat? Nine. Eight months, right? The feeling that, that you could totally, totally wrong me. And I still could be the person that I want to commit to be for my own sake, because I don't want to sink to that level of tit for tat. Not that I become the shmata, but that I prove my real ideals, that I just want to keep this going because, you know, it, it feels right for me. And I believe in you and us, and I want that schuss. You know, we're, we're in Elul now, and um, there's a beautiful, beautiful piece by the Lubavitch Rebbe. He says there's two Sukim that are almost identical in Shir Hashirim. One is Dodi Liva Anilo, my beloved is mine and I'm his. And that's not that popular. You don't see much artwork or jewelry with Dodi Liva Anilo, right? The one that is popular is the acronym, right? The, the month is the acronym of Anila Dodi the Dodi Li. I am to my beloved and my beloved is to me. What's the difference? That in one case, the clarity is initiated from the other. He gives to me. And then I'm his. And that's fabulous and it's important, but it's not where we grow most. It's when I dig deep and I'm Mila Dodi, I initiate how much this relationship means. And and I put myself out in a vulnerable way that, that I prove how much it is and who I am. And then you become mine in a much deeper way. And I, I think when we realize that, that our greatness is going to come from being the initiator and the giver, and that's grand and that's godly, I, I, I think that really shifts us to, to a wonderful marriage. Not right. simple, not simple, but, but very big. Yeah, but that example of the Chet Eagle and the man the next day is very powerful. Yeah. Mr. Jurevel, I want to thank you so much for joining us. It's uh, always a pleasure to have you on the show and uh, so much to absorb and to implement. Thank you so much. And so, you know, there's, there's a, I think for that reason, you know, when a couple gets married, we don't wish them to have a house. We wish them to build one because it's a constant building. We're never over, right? Every stage, every bump, you're never there, you know, and, and it's exhausting, but empowering at the same time that it's, um, it's a constant avoda. It's, we're all in it, you know, and nobody's there yet. So we're in good company. We're all on the path. Yeah. Thank you so much. Okay, a good Shabbos. Thanks for having me. Joining us now is Rabbi Daniel Frank. Rabbi Frank is a licensed marriage and family therapist and also a dating coach who assists singles and couples, both pre- and post-marriage. We'll be focused more on post-marriage today. He is the author of A Couple's Forum, How Can I Change for Heaven's Sake? And also, Rav Yaakov Weinberg talks about Chinuch, and he's about to put out an exciting new safer, The Making of a Dynamic Duo. Rabbi Frank, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thank you for having me. So Rabbi Frank, let's divide up. Love to talk about some of the problems in marriage. We're talking about, I don't know if we should call it controversy or fighting, uh, quarreling. 
or dealing with issues, and then we'll start talking about solutions. So on the problem side, is there a difference between men and women and what issues they engage in conflict over? And also not only what issues do they uh, determine, I'm going to engage in conflict on this one, but also in how they engage in conflict. Have you seen differences between the genders? I I think that's pretty uh, uh, well understood already, that um, of all the differences that produce conflict in relationships, whether it's um, different personality types or upbringings, the area in which uh, produces the most differences is the gender differences. Um, So I don't want to be so stereotypical, uh, but the facts are the facts. And generally speaking, uh, you know, men will approach things in one way, uh, maybe on a more practical, um, intellectual way of dealing with things. And women, on the other hand, are, you know, on the more on the emotional side. I mean, that's not, it shouldn't be new to anybody. There are, there are exceptions. Um, and anybody that finds themselves to be more feminine in their approach and, and when they're men and the opposite is okay. You know, it doesn't mean everybody's the same, but, but I would say that, uh, that's pretty well understood. Okay. So, so variable number one is going to be gender gender, that's going to be number one. And uh, that's um, how they engage in conflict. How about what the issues that they have with their spouses? Well, so the the differences really run the gamut. It's, it's kind of interesting. I find that when working with singles, you mentioned I work with singles and oftentimes, uh, and this may even be more characteristic of singles as they get older and dating, that there's some kind of a desperate attempt to align as well as possible in almost every area that they consider to be important. Like, for example, they might say things like, you know, I like nature, so I'd like my, I need my spouse to like nature also. And so, of course, our response is, how important is nature that it should determine whether or not you marry that person? And so I'll say to them, well, if you're questioning whether or not you're, you know, if you're, if you're wondering where you're going to spend your honeymoon, if it's going to be in some hotel in Manhattan or some remote island with no electricity and you're surrounded by nature, you'll figure out you'll figure out what to do with that. But if your intention is to live in a teepee, you know, and eat grasses and herbs the rest of your life, then it's going to really be a very central issue and maybe you ought to align with that area. So the first thing is, you know, um, that differences are, are going to happen and let's make sure we don't get bogged down in the differences that aren't so central. But even in the areas where they are central, let's say in critical values. And so you'll say when you're dating, well, at least I want to make sure that they value certain aspects of Yiddishkeit or whatever. Um, so then you say, well, I guess we're I guess we're aligned. That's great. The problem is that even after you align in the critical areas, let's say the values, once you get married, you start to realize that within the execution of those values, there are going to be many, many, many micro decisions that you're going to probably going to conflict about. So in a certain way, you're never going to get past conflict. It's going to happen. Even if you've aligned in the most important areas, conflict's going to happen because we have different personalities, different approaches, different backgrounds. And as we said before, most likely because of the fact that you're different genders. And said, you would ask me, you know, what are some of the areas of conflict? So it could be in every area. Ideally, we have the same values, but in executing values, there'll be differences. In child rearing, you'll have differences. And that's a big area in which couples conflict about, you know, how we both want the same end products in most cases, but how we get there is going to be oftentimes subject to debates. And of course, how we relate to money and spending money, which also ends up becoming a huge area of conflict for many couples. Okay, so let me recap where we are right now. Uh, I asked you about uh, what are the main issues and how to engage in conflict if there's a difference in the genders. And it turns out that how 
in general, on average, how somebody uh, engages in conflict. Gender is the number one determinant, and then there are other determinants as well. When it comes to the issues, um, gender seems to not have a huge impact. The issues can be across the board, and they can be as a result possibly of gender, but it could be a personality conflicts, different upbringings, poor communication skills, and the like. And uh, so far, what you've said, uh, major issues that do come up, money, financial issues, and chinuch, children issues, raising kids of issues. Is that correct? Is that a good recap so far? That's correct. I just want to clarify that uh, if I heard you right, it sounded as if to say like gender doesn't influence other distinctions, other dif- other, other differences. It, it may very well. You know, it may be because of my male approach to things, my decisions about how to handle a child in a certain circumstance is going to be very different than yours. So gender will make the difference, but it's not the only source of difference. It is clearly a difference. And the way the Torah sets up marriage, it sets us up automatically for conflict by the virtue of the fact that we have to marry the opposite gender. But on top of that, and there's these other ones too, uh, background, etc. Right. Okay. So our differences, differences come up, you pointed out, and they're going to come up no matter what. If there are significant differences, can this be viewed as a positive thing? Possibly, I don't know how, or is it an indication that uh, these people really don't belong together? This is a critical question. And it's uh, it's a question that I think couples, we need to really have clarity in the answer to this um, because it could spell the difference between uh, optimism and, and and positively working towards something versus yush and giving up. You know, one of the titles of our workshops is Incompatibility, the grounds for a great marriage, which sounds kind of counterintuitive. Um, there's actually a story which I'm sure everybody knows. I'm not sure if everybody knows the rest of the story, so I'll just tell it to you quickly. It's a Shlomazam Norbach. Everyone knows the story that when at his wife's Levaya, at the Rebbe's in Levaya, apparently he didn't ask for Mechila. So it turns out that uh, there was a young man who was engaged and he was a Talmud of Shlomo Zalmarabach. And uh, so he got some marital tips and then uh, he went away for a year uh, in Kolo. He left Yerushalayim wherever he went. But he came back a year later, so Shlomo Zalman asked him how marriage was. And his answer was, Menuchas. This is like tranquil waters. Everything is calm. It's wonderful. No conflict. At which point Shlomo Zalman said to him, are you living together in the same house? At which point, you know, the, the cousin, uh, young man was, you know, obviously surprised by that. And he said, of course, I mean, I'm telling you, we're getting on so well. There's been no conflict, no nothing. And he kept on asking him, are you sure you're not living in the dormitory? I mean, and, and at some point the boy said, I, I don't understand. I mean, the mice with the rabbits and, you know, uh, we're one year in and I think we're on the way. So this is the rest of the story. And some know it, some don't know it. Zilberstein brings it down, among others, that uh, that Zaman said to you, didn't get the story. There's, of course we conflicted. How can two people, man and woman, be in the same house and not have conflict? We had many conflicts in our marriages. The difference is, I never had to apologize. We never had to apologize to each other because of the way we handle our conflicts. Which means to say that even the great ones, of course it's conflict. Conflict, and I say it like this, if there's no conflict, there's no connection. If there's no conflict, there's no love. And it's a huge piece to understand because when couples, let's say they manage to get through engagement feeling like they're like that perfect match. They were fortunate not to have any conflicts along the way. All of a sudden after the after the after the chuppah, we find that they get not only one conflict, but they start coming at them fast and furiously. And then there, there comes this huge like that I make a mistake. And that's the that's why I say the 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 the, um, the paradigm shift is to understand that until conflicts happens, there is no love. And if you give me a minute, I'll just tell you like my I'll give you my synopsis of what I believe to be is the Jewish approach to marriage and, and life overall, literally in a minute or two. And it, and it basically follows the following steps. And I'm just going to say them as a checklist. And if you want to challenge me on it, you're welcome to do that. Or, But the way I understand it is step number one, God created the world 
to be a giver. I think we have that pretty much well sourced in our, in our svarim. Uh, we were created to emulate God, which therefore would mean if we do the math, that we're created to be givers. And if we want to become givers, we have to find out what are the dynamics of giving from the ultimate giver himself. And here's where the, the critical concept is that they teach us in the Kabbalistic sources, which I know very little about, but I know they use the word tzimtzum. That the way Hashem created the world is that he, I'm not sure what this means, maybe you can fill in the definitions, but he's mitzamtim himself. He, in a certain way, limited or constricted himself to make room for others. That's what giving requires. So when we get married, we have to engage in our most ultimate act of symptom, that we make room for others. And it's only when we make room for others that we can be givers, that we respond to the otherness. If my wife, if my spouse thinks just like I do and feels just like I do, and therefore we do things because of how we feel and how we think, there's no act of giving going on over there. I do that anyway. But the moment I meet a conflict of a, an opinion or, or, or a feeling or a way of doing things, my way of giving is to make room for that and to acknowledge it and respond to it. And that only happens through conflict. Without conflict, there's no love. So it's really the grounds to be able to create connection. And that's what couples need to know. They say, you know, when I find conflict, that's another opportunity to be a giver. But, but without that, we're really not giving. We're coexisting very nicely, and it's a nice, easy ride. Maybe the way engagement was for many people, but this is where love really begins. So I it's say, not- no, I say, if you see conflict, don't fight it, but embrace it. And now we've got to figure out what to do with it. Like, how do you emerge? How do you get from conflict to connection? That's going to be its own conversation, but don't fight it, embrace it. So embrace it and it's how you deal with it. It's how you deal with it is the issue. Correct. And if we follow the Arbach's role model, uh, if we follow the Arbach's model, we try to understand what that was, then the love is, you know, through the roof. If we fight and kick and scream and get in the mud, it's, uh, it's a problem. Uh-huh. Okay. So, so what are the methods that you employ when you try to help couples deal with their conflicts? Is there the top method that works 98% of the time? What's the process that you go through? So the first thing is, which we already covered, was more the education piece, the educational piece, which is don't be afraid of conflict. This is your opportunity to step up and be a giver by not necessarily giving in, but by acknowledging and dealing with the position of the other. That's the educational piece, which we already covered. But practically speaking, I think the one that probably, uh, you know, with two healthy people, but are in conflict, I, I think it's it's a, it, it's a simple model. Of course, execution is always a challenge, but here's the model. So I say X, you say Y. And I'll give an example. And it's an example that, that has come up in various different variations over the years. So there isn't one person, maybe it's uh, it's a composite I'm going to share with you right now. But let's take the, let's take the following. There's a guy, he he's a Rebbe and he's he wants to stay in Chinuch. And, and the spouse wants out. She wants him to get a job, not a job. He wants to get, you know, go out to business, make, better, make more money. And that's their conflict. So what are you going to do with that? It's a black and white decision, pretty much. Is he going to be a Rebbe or is he going to work on Wall Street? There's no half-half. You, know, you want to try to, you know, uh, half a day learning, half a day uh, Rebbe, half a day. It's not going to work. It's not sustainable. And in reality, so what are you going to do? So in conflict resolution, in, in, in compromise, so Rebbe... Wall Street. So what's the compromise? Where, where's their where's their middle ground over here? You're literally with a win-lose situation. One's going to win and one's going to lose. And, and unfortunately, what happens is when there's this setup, couples basically just stay focused on positions. And she'll argue 
that you know that's it. We, we, we have no money, and we, we can't afford, and 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 you're such you're so self self absorbed. It's all about you and, and your career, and you don't care about your family. And it gets and it starts getting nastier and nastier the more this goes on. And it's all about the fact that he st- wants to stay to be a rebbe. And of course, he yells back at her. And you're trying to you know you're trying to pull me away from the thing that I like to do, and and whatever else goes along with that. And as long as they stay in positions, which is really an unsolvable conflict. It's going to devolve into a really nasty battle. So what we have to go with this is to get under the position and identify what are the interests and the drives and the needs that are underneath that position. I we won't have a chance to speak about this so much today, but in the conversational communication, my mantra and all the work that I do is to get to dialogue. And the very specific protocol that I use with my with couples is the solution to almost everything is getting to dialogue and using the vehicle of dialogue. My, I, what I try to do is help couples get to what's underneath the position. Don't get bogged down by the position. What's going on? So if we take this particular story, so it turns out that this guy is a superstar Rebbe. This is where he gets his fulfillment. This is where his, he's really, he's really, he's not just trying to cop out of, you know, having to do something else. This guy is a superstar and everything about him connects to being a Rebbe. And she needs to know that. And she has to be able to focus on that. Doesn't mean that he's going to end up being the Rebbe, but she needs to really pay attention to that and connect to it and appreciate it and work with that. Can't just ignore it. By the same token, he needs to be able to understand what really is driving her to move him away from being a Rebbe. And in, let's say in one particular case, he was such a good Rebbe, he was so involved in so many things in the areas of Chinuch that she felt neglected. And although one might have just thought it was about making money and living a luxurious life, it really was much more about the fact that she just felt left out and she wasn't a priority to him. So what ends up happening here is that once we got down to the areas of interest, his responsibility as a person who's being mitzamtzim, of course, making room for, and wanting to be a giver, he needs to be able to consider her sensitivity. And whatever decision they make, she cannot feel second rate. That's clear. No matter what they decide to do, whether Rebbe, Wall Street, or selling insurance, whatever it's going to be, one thing is clear that he won't make any decision that's going to make her feel second rate. And by the same token, she is going to make sure that the decision that's being made is not going to compromise the things that make him connected to his being a Rebbe. It turns out at the end of the day that he stayed a Rebbe because it just was so compelling. He Kleisel couldn't lose a guy like this. You know, we have such a shortage of of, of Mechanchem that are like this that he really couldn't deprive Kleisel of a person like this. But at the same time, he understood that if it ever gets to a point in time where she still remains second to his job and he has to leave, it's his fault that Kleisel loses the Rebbe, not hers. That was the solution that was constructed. And that's what we call a win-win because even though he ended up becoming the Rebbe, they both won because the interests of both achieved, were both addressed. That's a, that's a very powerful illustration and not focusing on the positions, but focusing on the underlying interests, feelings, or values. Does that apply also if the uh, wife gets upset that the husband loses, leaves his clothing around or the bathroom dirty, the plate on the table, or if the husband gets upset that the wife is overly strict about kashrasis issues in, in, in the kitchen. Does this apply to all of those areas of conflict and tension, or is this uh, more limited to employment area or, or a direction in life? Uh, okay. So you covered a lot of ground with that question. So it, it certainly covers a lot of the differences of, let's say, uh, where are we going to live? I want to live in New York. You want to live in California. Also, really can't work both of those. Uh, do, we, do we use air conditioning or, 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 or ceiling fans? I mean, <laughs> there's so many hundreds and 
hundreds of examples that couples are going to have to figure out like what's driving each person and coming up with a, what we call the, the true win-win situation. But if you talk about frustrations, you know, husband leaves his socks out and the wife's being frustrated. So those are frustrations. I mean, that's not really confidence, it's frustrations. You could, you know, in a certain way, but it's, it's, a, it's a frustration. So what happens under those circumstances? It really bothers, it really bothers her. So she communicates, shares a thing that it bothers her, but he continues to do it. So what happens then? Um, is it a conflict resolution? He doesn't have a position that he leaves his socks on the floor. It may be, he may need to help understand that his ADHD makes it very hard for him or whatever is going on. You know, there may be a way for him to be, to explain to the challenge of picking up those socks. But that's, that's, that to me is just general frustrations. And the thing about that, what I would advise couples, and I actually once heard somebody uh, very eye-opening. There was um, a single woman who, you know, for the most part, her circles were with other single single women, and their conversations were from perspectives of single women. But she was in a certain situation in which uh, her her peer group ended up becoming married women. And what she found interestingly was that the conversations with the single woman, whenever they would discuss people, men that they dated, let's say, and let's say they had. Um, bad table manners, you know, they didn't know how to hold a fork, you know, that kind of thing. So I can never marry a guy like this. I can never marry a guy like this. Um, but then the same things would be brought up by the married woman and say that my husband can't hold a fork, you know, and it's like, it's so embarrassing to watch him, but whatever, you know, I got to learn to live with it. So what they're saying no to, these people are coming to accept. So it may be something to consider is to have a little more flexibility to, to, to let people be, uh, you know, I know it's a little bit of a position on me, but, uh, you know, I'll, I'll share it. I'll express it. But there are two warnings I would say in someone like this. Yeah. Again, couples will figure out their way to, to work around frustrations, but two things are very clear to me. The first of all, don't make it personal. Just don't make it personal. It's not because they don't care about you. And really an extension to that is number two, which is never use a love trap. Well, what, you know what, what is love trap is? What's a love, love trap, trap is when you say, if you really love me, you would clean that up afterwards, which really reduces it all to a manipulative way of not allowing a person to have limitations, you know? So whatever, these are the kinds of, we kind of work these things through, but I don't, this is not the kind of conflict we we're discussing before is when you literally, you know, go to your parents, not go to your parents. I don't want to go. You do want to go. You know, should we send our child to this school, to that school? That's more of what I said before about having a, an, a the, the formal process in a certain way to get to what's really going underneath this position, what's going on for you. But yeah, of course, and, and everything you should, we should try to understand what drives our person and why they're unable to keep up picking up those socks or why is it that she has some kind of a, a very strong uh, cautious sensitivity level that you know makes other people around her stressed out. You know, understanding is always a critical piece. Rabbi Frank, what happens when you meet an impasse? You're trying to solve your issues, reach resolution, but you're simply at a point that you're not getting anywhere. Is there is there a point that you say we need to bring in reinforcements? And if so. Who do you turn to? Do you return to your rabbi? Do you hire the, the the therapist? Do you turn to your best friend, the person you sit next to in shul? Uh, what, what are the options and what are going to be the most effective individuals to ask assistance and advice from? Okay, that's a very good question. Uh, in terms of the overall question of do you bring in a third person? And the answer is we do need to have third people in our Rolodex or whatever you call it today. Question is who? Who do we call upon? So it would seem to depend upon the particular question. Is it a hashkafa question, the kind of a thing that would be most appropriately asked to a Rav, a competent Rav, a Rav who deals with these kinds of questions? Um, there was a couple that had a disagreement that had to do with etiquette, eating etiquette, and they got to an impasse. Now they tried, 
using the conflict resolution strategy that we had discussed before. They just couldn't get, they just were stuck. So I suggested that they mutually agree to submit their question to Miss Manners. And they agreed that whatever she says is what they're going to do. She was the one who was, a, she's the master of etiquette. So they sent the question to Miss Manners. And a few weeks later, they got the response and they both had committed ahead of time. Whatever she says, that's what we're going to do. So if, the, if, you, if you're arguing about etiquette, then try to reach out to her. But, but here's the thing. And I say this sometimes to couples when they're, when they're, in a conflict, and they want to jump to ask the Shaila. They want to jump right away to it. They'll say, no, we have to ask the Shaila. So, Hold on a second. Let's see if we can work this out ourselves. What happens when you jump to ask the Shaila? So here's, if this scene is maybe familiar to you, but, you know, guy goes to shul, comes back after davening, tests his wife, wife, by the way, I asked the Shaila to the Rav, and he says, like me, no? And what does she say back? She's like, what are you talking about? Did you, how did you ask him the Shaila? Ah, good question. So what I said a couple of days, listen, let's work this thing through. Before we ask the Shaila, I want to make sure that he understands her position so clearly. He has made enough room to really get it and know what's what the position is, but more importantly, what's driving the position to the point that he can actually represent her story as well as he can re- represent his and vice versa. That the impasse happens, we don't just jump to, the, to asking the question. The impasse that needs a third party should really only be brought to the third party after both people feel we've done everything we can as a couple. I got it. I hear what you're saying. I got it. I hear what you're saying. We really have a problem over here and we don't have the creativity to figure out, is it going to be your position, my position or a third position? Let's take it to a third person. That's and, the process. And then I would think it's important that they go jointly, not that he goes to his chaver and she goes to her, her friend. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I mean, uh, she has to really, or he has to really trust her. They have to trust each other to have them go with the Charlotte to the person alone, but it could happen. It could happen. I mean, if they really and genuinely felt like I get it, you know, this is really a challenge and the, and the other spouse is convinced that they really get it, then uh, why not? You know, it could work that one would ask the question, but, but that's a, that's a, it's a, a key, uh, milestone to get to, um, before presenting the Shiloh. Last question for you. Um, if I'm going to ask you, what do you consider a successful fight conflict and what would be an unsuccessful fight? What would be an unsuccessful resolution? Well, I think the answer to that question is goes back to Shlomo Zama Orbach's story. Uh, a successful quote-unquote fight is a fight that doesn't require anybody to apologize. It doesn't get personal. You can have a position. You can be passionate about your position. But just try to make sure that you remember you're speaking to a spouse, and and uh, and it doesn't again doesn't take away from necessarily the energy you put into it. But if you're able to have those conversations and recognize that this is part of relationships to others, trying to create a bridge around their differences, this is just how relationships work. And the way we show our love is the respect that we show. It doesn't necessarily we don't necessarily show our love by by giving in and and abandoning our position. What shows love is the fact we take our spouse's position seriously. We deal with it. Very good. Just remember you're on the same team. Exactly. Very good. Rabbi Frank, I want to thank you so much for joining us. Very uh, good words of wisdom, and uh, certainly they will be helpful to many people. Thank you so much. My pleasure. I hope it's helpful. Joining us now is Mrs. Panina Flug. Mrs. Flug has been a psychotherapist for two decades. She has advanced training in emotionally focused couples therapy. Her practice focuses on both individual and family therapy, but her real passion is promoting the importance of premarital counseling. Mrs. Flug, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So Mrs. Flug, dealing with uh, issues constantly dealing with issues between between spouses. So is it best, shalom bias, does shalom bias means that spouses should just avoid conflict? And as a, a spouse, should you just give in? I want to just give in. I'm not going to say anything. And uh, that's my shalom bias. 
Okay, so one of the slides that I have in my premarital course for the couples that I teach, I have a quote that says, avoidance is the best short-term strategy to escape conflict and the best long-term strategy to ensure suffering, right? So I think that says a lot that avoidance, it's not good to avoid. Now, let's back up a little bit. Like we all come into a marriage with a diff- with different um, different skills, um, different backgrounds, different relationship role models. So it is easier for some people to talk about their feelings, right? Some homes, they talk about feelings, they will argue in a respectful way. And some in some homes, people don't talk about feelings. It's not emotionally safe to talk about feelings. So this definitely impacts how two people come into a marriage, you know, as well as their personality and their life experience, right? So so one of the things that, so no, I, I wouldn't say it's good to avoid conflict. Um, now, I always tell people, you know, in a marriage, you need to have a voice and you also need to protect your partner's feelings, right? So you need to, you need to share your feelings, but you don't want to draw blood. You don't need to say it in a mean way. It's not like everything's fair game to say. Like some people will come into my office and say, okay, we're in therapy. Let's just say everything, put it all out there. And I say, well, wait a minute. That's not necessarily the right approach. Like we have to. So I, I say one of my mentors once told me this many years ago. You protect your own heart, meaning you have a voice and you protect your partner's heart. You don't draw blood. You say things in a way that's not going to be harmful or mean. Right. So avoiding conflict. Now, sometimes you do avoid conflicts. It's very important to stop and say, wait, is this worth it? Like, am I going to complain that, you know, my that my wife didn't do the dishes? You know, am I going to complain that my husband didn't get me flowers? Right. So certain things you say, you know what, this is a one off or it's not important. Important. The person's, I'm going to give him a pass. I'm going to give her a pass. However, if something is weighing on you, this is one of the this is one of the um, ways that we try to build a, a healthy relationship is that you need to have emotional safety, right? So I need to be able to say to my spouse, you know, I, I, my feelings were hurt when you didn't get me flowers before Pesach without being afraid that he's going to be upset at me, that he's going to say, you know what, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to hurt your feelings. You know, and that he can say to me, you know what, like I was traveling all day and I came home and there was no dinner and it just made me feel bad because I worked so hard. There has to be emotional safety, a climate in a relationship where you can talk about feelings and know that the other person is not going to get angry at you for having feelings. Right. And not going to get defensive. So it's it's not good to avoid conflict. It's good to share feelings and work through feelings. And often what, 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 what all couples tell me, and I know it to be true, is that when they start to, to, to talk about their feelings more, like let's say when we're in therapy and we're working on developing those skills, they do feel closer, right? Because when you say to someone, something's bothering you, you say to your spouse, something's bothering you, and your spouse validates your feelings and your spouse understands and cares, you feel closer, so right? I let's have, say, yeah. I, I have three points so far. Be open but don't draw blood. I love that quote. Don't draw blood. So try to deal with conflicts, but don't draw blood. Number two is be selective in the issues that you want to deal with. You don't want to deal with every single issue because that's not going to be good either. And also be receptive of feedback. Don't be defensive and be open to hearing from your spouse. And and that is the method or three principles of conflict resolution in marriage. So what what would you say are the skills necessary to be effective at conflict resolution in marriage? And would you say those are the same dealing with conflicts with 
friends or business partners or others that you interact with on a regular basis? Is it a different set of skills? Because maybe you're going to be less worried about drawing blood when dealing with others than dealing with a spouse. So how would you, uh, two questions, what what are the skills necessary and is it the same as general conflict resolution? Okay, sure. So I'm going to tell you the skills that I try to help my couples in therapy and then also my engaged and newlyweds when I'm trying to help them learn how to have a healthy relationship. So we teach how to be vulnerable, right? So what that means is how to talk about your feelings, right? Like, let's say when a couple's in a fight. So if I say, if I walk into the house and I say, hello, does anybody care about me? Is anybody listening? Anyone care that I worked all day? Um, Hello, you guys are so selfish. You don't care about me. So my family is going to think that I am acting hateful, nasty, angry. They don't seem here that I am feeling hurt and I'm feeling ignored and I'm not feeling prioritized, right? So being helping couples learn vulnerability is helping them share the deeper feelings, right? The sadness, the fear, not like the anger and the frustration and resentment that comes out in the heat of an argument. So vulnerability, empathy, that's really important. We teach how to have empathy, which kind of means how do you try to walk in your spouse's shoes, try to understand their feelings, really understand. Empathy means showing someone that you get it, that you can like sit in the mud with them and and try to feel their pain. So vulnerability, empathy, validation. Validation is very important, right? So what that validation means is if your spouse shares their feelings, you don't say, I hear you, but I just, I just bought you flowers last week. Right. Right. So that's going to end the conversation. That's going to make the person not want to share their feelings next time. Right. So that vulnerability, empathy, validation, listening, listening does not come naturally to many people, right? You have to, sometimes you have to learn how to be a good listener. So we practice that a lot in therapy and premarital education, how to really listen to a person, not thinking about how you're going to respond, not just thinking about your part, just listening when they're sharing their feelings. Um, Something that's extremely important is not being right, right? So usually I always say this many times in therapy, it's not about who's right. It's about the space between the two of you, right? Like if you're going to worry about being right, you're not going to repair, you're not going to validate, and you're not going to acknowledge when you hurt another person. So being right is not important at all. It's about, listen, my spouse is feeling disconnected. My spouse is feeling hurt. How do I make them feel better? How do I, you know, create connection? And then repairing, how to repair conflict, right? So, you know, in the type of my approach is we actually practice the repairing, the communication in the therapy room or in the premarital workshop. We don't say go home and try this. We do it. We practice to help people learn how to how to communicate in an effective way. Okay, so your next question, is this the same thing that works in other relationships? What works in a in a marital relationship? So I always tell couples, and I think it's true, like I feel like the the the, the skills I'm teaching couples are very helpful. Most of those skills for parent-child relationship or any relationship, relationship with an adult with a between an adult child and a parent, between siblings. So in terms of close relationships, it's the same. It's, it's many of the same skills. However, I always say, I often will say this to a husband in therapy, what works at work doesn't work at home, right? So a lot of times at work, someone has to be more of a problem solver. 
someone has to be more, you know, analytical or or in their head, intellectual, you know, less emotional. So what works at what works in at, in the workplace doesn't work in relationships usually. There are some of the same skills. You want to validate someone, you don't want to be defensive. So some of it is the same, but some of it is different. Right. It depends what you work in. So you just listed six very important skills in conflict resolution and marriages and closer relationships, let's call is it, as opposed to business relationships. It sounds to me that these may be more endemic and natural for women than men, I, I would think, empathy and, and the like. So, but regardless of the gender, when should these skills be learned? Some people may have these skills, many people won't. Some people may have some and not others. Is this something that should be learned, obviously, ideally through life? But if you don't have it, you're getting close to marriage. Should this be part of marriage preparation? Should it be once you get married and you see what you need to deal with and you say, oops, I got to deal with this. I got to develop skills. When's the ideal time uh, to develop these? Okay. So ideally, you know, it's a parent's job to teach these skills, right? But not all parents can teach these skills, right? So ideally these skills begin with our relationships with our children. However, this is why it's so important for uh, um, daters to kind of you know, speak to a therapist or speak to a mentor or relationship mentor and understand their own patterns with other people, you know, so that they can know what do I need to learn? Like, what did I not what what did I not get from my parents or what what do I struggle with in terms of relationships? So I think that ideally, you know, children should be learning these skills like I think schools, you know, a lot of the high schools now are starting to try to teach, you know, healthy relationship skills. However, I think that daters really have to look at themselves and say, what do I need to do to be to prepare for a healthy marriage? Now, I know that on a lot of yeshivas now they'll have, um, I know I hear from my boys like that, the you know, the Rabbanim and the yeshivas will do these vod, like vods on dating and teach some skills. Um, and I think dating coaching has become extremely popular. And it's interesting, there's less of a stigma to go to a dating coach than to go to premarital education. I don't know why, but everyone's talking about their dating coaches. And I think it's great. I really do. You have to know who you're going to. You have to you, know, I, I, you have to go to a dating coach that is trained, right? Because a lot of times a shotgun will say they're a dating coach, but they're not really a dating coach, right? So dating coaches can help with this. Um, and then, and parents, um, educators, and then again, hopefully a couple, you know, will go for a premarital education and learn these, some of these skills. That's what I'm, you know, that's, that's, that's my hope is that one day that will be mainstream to go for premarital education and learn these skills. Like, if you think about it, this is the most important, this is the foundation for future generations, your marriage, you're building a, you're building a home and it's going to impact future generations. So why would we not set our children up for success? Why would we not want to do the most preparation. I mean, I, I think it's every, every, there's too much focus on the preparing for the wedding and not enough focus on preparing for the marriage. What's after the wedding, what the wedding yeah. is all about. Yeah. So, so yeah. I mean, you touched on this, that it's uh, people are more prone, inclined, uh, amenable to going to a dating coach rather than going to, we could call it therapy. And it's probably because therapy has a negative connotation of something's wrong with me as opposed to a dating coach. I just need a little bit of assistance because I don't date. I'm not a professional dater. So they're going to get me through that dating process. So how do we say, how do we go about mainstreaming this? How do you convince people that this is positive, that you should go proactively to quote unquote therapy? Could be we have to change it from calling it therapy to relationship coaching. And maybe that's the fix that we need. We need a little bit cosmetics on this. Um, So how do you go about mainstreaming this when, when it's about having successful marriage 
um, and convincing people that really don't have a problem, but it's simply positive thing to go to. How, how do we get them to come? Okay, so first of all, I actually do really try to call it premarital education. And I say it's not therapy, it's education, right? It's um, education to learn the skills to have a healthy relationship. I also think you're right, though, that when someone's dating and if they have any doubts, they should talk to a therapist before they make this most important decision, you know, of their life, <laughs> who to who to share their life with. So I think it has, I mean, I, it has to come, I think it should come from the Rabbanim, the Masadri Kiddushin should say, you know what, like do some, learn a little bit, go to, just like you go to a Kala teacher or a Hassan teacher, go talk to a premarital educator and learn the skills. That, that's been trying to convince a lot of people to make this happen. What I notice is, is that I've spoken to many Rabbanim and they're all on board and they're like, this is great. This is great. However, who do they send me? They send me the couples that they're worried about. They don't just send me every couple. So that's what I'm seeing that we're really behind because in the secular world, it is more in style to do premarital education. It's not, there's not, I don't think there's a stigma really in the secular world. So I think we have to find a way because here, like everybody is crying about all these divorces. Everyone is lamenting and saying, there's so many divorces of 20 year olds, right? However, nobody is saying, what do we do about this? What are we doing wrong? What do we have to, re we have to rethink the, the dating process. We have to rethink the engagement process. Mrs. Flug, thank you so much for all your insights. You should have tremendous hatzlach and getting this mainstreamed. Hopefully people will become aware of the necessity for the uh, pre-marriage workshops and coaching and training, because this could be really critical in having a, a very successful marriage together. Thank you for having me.